BBC Radio 5 Live. Ready, Mark? Yes, I am ready. Sure you're ready? Yes. You're still typing your column. No, no, I'm not. I'm just typing my column. I'm just making notes for the for the forthcoming show. You work with notes? <laughs> well, I, it's like revising for exams, that if you write the things down, then the act of writing them down puts them into your head. And so... Right. That's why, you know, when you're doing exam revision, you do exam, you do revision cards, not so you can take them in and cheat from them, although I imagine that, that may be something that... Be, so but because... You're the, writing it on my hand, that's not... That's not the no, that, that's not the... No, but because the act of writing it out puts it into, your, right. puts it into your head, and that's, that's what I do. That's, that's why I think my system for waking up and remembering things by writing them with my finger on the back of my head actually works because you do what i have i'm sure i mentioned this before. so are we now in podcast gold oh we are okay fine yeah. if i want to wake up at six o'clock i uh, i write the number six on the back of my head or if i want to no, remember, that, that that means you're one third of damien omen three by potatoes i write potatoes on the back of my head with my finger but it's just the act of writing them down how sorry how does writing the number six on the back of your head wake you up at six o'clock I think it must, exactly the same as you're just saying, must put it in your head somewhere. No, but how does your mind know when it's six o'clock? Are I'm you like, the man with a clock in his walls? I'm like Jack Reacher. I can, I have an internal clock. I can tell you, I don't, I don't know. So, so, okay, so you yeah. don't need an alarm clock. No, I mean, I wake up stupidly early anyway. It's just, it's a way of, it's a way of remembering things. If I want to say buy, buy. It's a strange way. I have my birthday card. I just write birthday card. You literally write birthday card. On the back of your With head. my finger, yeah. And then you Doesn't remember? everyone do this? No, I've never heard it before I in think, my life. I'm I sure think. we'll now get loads and loads of emails from people who do. I have never heard that before in my life. Where did you get it but from? It, I have no idea. But it is just... It, it's exactly the same as the aid memoir of, you know, writing something down just helps you remember it. Yeah, but there's... I don't know. But the thing about revision... I mean... Everyone's it, looking at me as though I'm weird. OK, I, I'm just going to... I'm going to look away from the microphone. It's not... No one else has done that, right? No one else in the... No, there's literally a sea of people shaking their heads. No one else has done that. Did Peter from Germany tell you how this, to do it? This is you like... You're like Chucky out of John Wyndham. Yeah. What? Fair enough. I know it's weird. It's, it's a strange thing. But we all have strange little ticks, do we not? It, it, that, is, that is undoubtedly the case. Okay, well, that one's, that one's mine. I'm just... I can't figure out... As well as being Peter from Germany. Peter from, I just can't figure out how you came up with it. Me neither. Someone I mean, told I've, me. But I, it works. So, you know, what can I say? Oh, so somebody else told you. So it was from somebody else. It wasn't that you did We're it. We're going back into the mystery. I time. do a thing which is really picky, which I have done ever since I was a child. Every Friday at two. No. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I, about 25, 30 times a day. I draw a shape in the air with my finger. Here we go. What? Well, it's just, you're just as weird as me. God. Yeah, but the weird thing about it is that I don't know what the shape is. I mean, I know exactly what it is. Do it, and, well, do it now, then. Okay. And why do you do it? I don't know. So here's what, here's what it looks like, OK? It goes like this. And the best way of describing it is yeah. it looks like... It looked like you were drawing... To me, it looked like you were drawing like a yacht with a, with a, a, a base, like a, a, an arc of a base... Yeah. Then maybe uh, a sail. Or it, 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 that's not a million miles away from what it is. That 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 was that's very perceptive. What it is is a, a something that looks like a number nine standing in a, 
you know what you know what Sabutio character. You know, yeah. you used to have those. So imagine if you cut a Sabutio thing in half, and then rather than it having a a, a player, it would have the number nine. And the difficult and the, the the thing that is, you start here, right? You go down and round and up. Then you go going up from the, one side of the yeah, from one side round the, the bottom yeah. up to the other corner. Then you come down and there's a little dip, and then you go up number nine that that. And then you have to make the... And it never quite joins. And then you have to rub the bit out that's missing. Now, I have no idea what that is. If I try and draw it with a pencil... Why, just, why do you draw it in the air? What would make you want to draw that in the air? I've got no idea. I've literally got no idea. Stop, it's, then. No, no, I can't Does stop. Does it bring it. you good luck? No, it's just a thing I do. I, you ward off the devil. Hang on. I'll, 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 I'll just... Sorry, I'll... Uh, so having taken the mickey out of me for writing no, no, things on I the know, back of my head, the editor's now looking, thinking, who have I got presenting this show? Is there anyone else who can come in at the last minute? So it looks like that, but that's not right. Can you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. looks like that, but that's not right. And so I'm that look- looks like the head of the Loch Ness Monster coming, coming out, out of a, a choppy Loch Ness. Yeah, fine. But here's the thing about it. It looks like that, but it's not right. So it's like I'm trying to draw it, but it's not right. And the only thing I can compare it to is it's like Richard Dreyfus in... Close Encounters, who, you know, he keeps building the thing out of thing and then he, and it doesn't look right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look right because space aliens have passed beyond him and told him the shape of the mountain. And it isn't until he cuts the top of it off and he suddenly realises that's what the mountain looks this like. This is a weird show. So I think already. that when I was a kid and I j- joked about you and John Wyndham and Chucky, I must have been visited you, by... Do you still draw that? All the time. I've okay. do, I, do, okay. I do it all if the you're time. A, if you're a, in psychoanalysts, uh, uh, where would they be? Pew... No, no, no. The P is silent, as in psychoanalyst. Yes. Thompson and Thompson. Psychoanalyst couch. How does that? Oh, I suppose couch from that point point of view. Anyway, okay. if you're a psychoanalyst and you listen to the pod or you know a psychoanalyst, can you please explain? Well, I mean, I think my thing is just weird, but yours is even weirder. It's, you're weirder than me. <laughs> which is really hard to imagine. So you draw something hey, in the air. People will, people will now feel as though they can tell us the weird things that they do, which make very little sense, but it just makes them feel better about the world. You don't feel that people have been doing that with this show for quite some time? There's an element of that. Okay. Anyway. So what kind of behaviour is that? Are you, like, possessed by the devil? Well, as I said with you, why is it that you, where did you get this from? It's just the th- I don't know where it came from. I genuinely don't know where it came from, but I've done it for as long as I can remember. Very strange. Anyway, someone will know. What, uh, we need a bit of some an interrupter. Yeah, an interpreter. That's well, what I, I just mean. thought the fact of you saying you write a six on the back of your head—that's a giveaway. Somebody got the could have been a seven. Any, anyone six, got six. the lost daggers of Megiddo handy? Uh, Oi, got an email here <clears throat> from. <laughs> Look out for that glass from Imogen Crump. Now uh, we know Imogen because yes. Imogen used to work at Five Live. She used to work on the show. Yeah, she did. When when this was part of the the bigger kind of uh, the bigger three uh, three hour show one to four, Imogen was part of that. Yes, and she wrote in about a year ago to tell us that she was walking in the outback because she's from she's Australia. New, no, is she, and she described for me the difference between New Zealand and Australia in the accent, which is six and sucks, six. And um, but she wrote in to say that she had heard a a bird make a babadook noise while she was walking around in the middle of nowhere, and it scared the life out of her. Anyway, well, she's back here. Hello. Um, Dear Boreham Plank, famous physicists, and you'll see why shortly. Okay. Having left the sanctuary of the church and more generally Auntie BBC to return to my colonial commoner roots, I now work at the University of Melbourne in Australia uh, as an editor of its news website, which is called Pursuit. 
My job now is to basically find and translate some of the amazing work the researchers are doing into everyday language that become that, that someone like Mark, for example, would not only understand but find genuinely intriguing. Why you're singled out at this point, I don't know. Because you wouldn't find it intriguing. You're not sharp enough. It's mostly fascinating. Not, not quite the interpretation I have. <laughs> it's mostly fascinating and occasionally flummoxing, which brings me to my point. There's a whole lot of work going on here in Australia into quantum physics, very particularly quantum computing. Our Australian of the Year this year was a quantum physicist from the University of New South Wales. Anyway, we decided to pull together a special report focusing on all things quantum, from the history of it to the latest advances. What I failed to factor in in my translating role was the need to have a basic grasp of all things quantum in order... Steady on, we'll get there. In order to put together <laughs> articles about quantum, and it's not just putting the word quantum in front of sciencey things to sound smart, which is what they do, of course, in films. <laughs> I can report that I, that I, although I didn't actually say it, I thought very loudly several times, what even is this? While talking to our Australian Research Council laureate fellow. <laughs> anyway, several existential Douglas Adam-esque crises later about yes. probability, entanglement and superpositions. Yes. We had about eight articles, a podcast and a video ready to go. Now I just had to come up with a name for our special report site. And then I remembered, altogether, Keanu Reeves. It's quantum, baby. So please find attached a link to our It's Quantum Baby site. Seriously? Yes, your one-stop shop for a basic understanding of quantum computing. It also includes a few Easter eggs I've snuck in there for members of the church, which will baffle everybody else. <laughs> a special shout-out to our Scottish exchange student, not really a very professional media type, Ed McCracken from the University of Edinburgh, who not only authored one of the articles while he was in Australia, but is an avid listener to your witterings, which we established randomly through a Jason Isaacs comment. Finally, can I propose a special place in your church for the quantum physicists, maybe quantum physicist floor space, so they have a lot of space to do their brainy, sciencey business at the back. Tinkety-tonk and Schrodinger's cat, etc. From our old friend Imogen... Crump. So she Fantastic. has got. She's leading a very thrilling life. Far more than when she was here. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, just a reminder if you're trying to remember what that site is called, it's called. It's Quantum Baby. There you go. And it's part of the University of Melbourne. <laughs> it's be useful. And then, and in when you go to the site, it's got a brief history of quantum, grasping the spooky in quantum. What has quantum ever done for me? <laughs> um, Seriously. Yeah. The quantum sensing revolution. <laughs> So, you want to work in quantum? Uh, yeah, and loads of stuff. So, everything you want to know about quantum from the University of Melbourne. I'm just shocked to learn that there is more to quantum than just putting the word quantum in front of anything. That's the way screenwriting works. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You need quantum paper. <laughs> You've got a quantum phone. On how, the other... how are we going to break into this bank vault? You need a quantum drill. Quantum screwdriver. Aidan Pink in New York City. It has to be, it's one of the best names on the show today. I believe the way that I discovered your show is unique. After I moved last year from Washington, D.C. to New York, I developed severe insomnia. We've been here before. I tried everything to fall asleep, taking medicine, drinking warm milk, reading boring books, even counting sheep. Nothing worked. Didn't try drinking heavily. Then my boss, who is from Leeds, he'll have done that, told me about the shipping forecast, which you can stream online. It's been a lifesaver. Yeah. For some reason, the steady litany of Dogger, Fisher, German, German bite. bite helps my brain wind down and allows me to get some blessed shut-eye. 
After delighting in the mellifluous tones of your nighttime newsreaders, I began to explore and then enjoy the rest of BBC Radio's offerings over the internet during the waking hours. Silly sketches and informative discussions on Radio 4, great music and chats on Radio 2, and then finally, of course, yourselves on 5 Live. So thank you, Simon and Mark, for helping me begin my weekend with entertaining and insightful conversations about my favourite medium. I even think I understand most of the inside jokes, though for a long time I believed that the app was only as real as the cruise is. Ha! <laughs> to the British listeners out there, take it from an American. The app is as real as the cruise is. They yeah, are both real. To, yeah. <clears throat> to the British listeners out there, take it from an American. Please don't take for granted what an incredible institution your public broadcasting service is. I only wish we had something like it in the US. As I am Jewish, this is the first church I've ever joined. I wonder if there are any other Jewish Welcome. listeners... come one, come all. ...interested in joining me in the church's Hebrew hall. Or an adjoining synagogue of cinema. <laughs> Hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> uh, this week was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, so I'd like to wish you and yours a very happy, healthy and sweet, happy 5,779. Very good. So very thank good. you very much to Aidan Pink in New York City. So he found us like a trickle-down effect. He start, started with a shipping forecast and worked his way all the way down to our humble programme. Whilst you are reading that out, Robin said in my head, cinemagogue. Why? Because you said cinema synagogue, and then Robin said, "Oh, I see cinema." Yeah, exactly. But as he said it, I, my brain thought, "What? What? What?" And it was only a couple of later that I figured out that's what it was. Okay, well, let's set it up there. There's a cinema just to the right of Hebrew Hall. Very good, as part of the church. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> we welcome all denominations and faiths, and none. Very good. <laughs> oh, you didn't mean that as a joke. No, no, no. What it means? None, as in none. None, as in none, but also as in the as none. In faith what what are you missing? Uh, uh, some stuff. Now, I was just trying to make the point that faith has got nothing to do with anything, as far as welcoming people to the show is concerned. Yes, we don't mind. Faithful, faithless. Here we go. Faith Brown was the Lily. I'm just asking. This is a little. This is a little insight into the production of the show. Faith No More. Editor, was the Lily James stuff for the show or for the podcast? For the show, for heaven's sake, I knew that. It was just a test, that's all. Cool. In which case, we conclude this part of the show with this from Daniel Freeze. Hello, Daniel Freeze. Dear Bridge and Trouble Water. Uh, STL and FTE. Oh, here we go. From the USA. Here we go. I have another incident of F-Tums. Oh, no, we're not. not, Film title, Unintended Melody Syndrome to report, which is uh, related to your musical conversation from last week Okay. Yeah. Every time I think about Dario Argento's classic or its remake, which recently premiered, it sounds like Suspiria. You're breaking my heart. You're shaking my confidence daily. <laughs> now, while the good doctor may not know what I'm talking about, oh Suspiria, you're breaking my heart. Why wouldn't I know? Well, because you don't know about any other tracks on the album. So why would you know about Excuse Suspiria? Me. So many people have got in touch with me to say that oh, they right. know that album off by heart, but they'd never heard okay. that track before. This is, this, is, this is from the Paddy Ashdown school of, let me quote the audience here. It was a cla- the, all, 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 listen, all politicians, Paddy was the, the number one exemplar. You go around saying, I've been talking to, uh, I've been knocking on doors here. Oh, yeah, and people have been telling me. People have telling me. They're saying we need to have more yeah. proportional representation. So you saying, yeah, everyone's getting in touch with me saying they've never heard of the track. Well, they've all been getting in touch with me and saying they have heard, of the, heard track, of the track. And the they're track. amazed that you can't possibly know anything about it. But I do know, oh, Suspiria, you're breaking my heart. And that will now anyway, be stuck in my head. Well, the good doctor 
may not know what I'm talking about. I wonder if anyone else has suffered, as I as I have, at the hands of Simon and Garfunkel's truly unforgettable melodies. Thank you, Daniel. I'll put that as one for me. Truly unforgettable, except for, one which, except for the one which is utterly show. unmemorable. I can't say that word, yeah, memorable. You don't, you don't actually own the album. So memorable. No, I don't know, but Linda owns the album. Anyway, enough. Well, it's seven minutes past two o'clock. Hello, good afternoon, welcome to the programme. This is Kermit and Mayo's Film Review, also known as Mayo and Kermit's Film Review. Never known we're, that. We're here till four Never known that way. With around. all the latest... You search it as Mayo and Kermit's Film Review, Google will say, what, you mean Kermit and Mayo's Film Review? Movie review. You're just trying to change facts. Everyone else You is. have alternative facts. Donald, <laughs> That's right, yes. Donald Gleeson is going to be here. Uh, one of our favourites. Should we ask him what he thinks the show is called? So he is, of course, now known as Abdominal Gleeson. Uh, and that started how? Remind me. Uh, it started because a listener was on a flight, a Chinese flight, and the in-flight entertainment... I'm going to read this out to him when he comes in. OK. The in-flight entertainment referred to him as Abdominal Gleason. That's right. Which we then showed to Marco Robbie, who found it very funny, who then took it off and said she was going to call him. So whether or not he knows about it, whether he knows about the miraculous things that occurred the last time he was on the show... Yes. We don't know, but <clears throat> we will be finding out more with Donal just after 2.30. Um, before we proceed, so Box Office Top 10 coming up in just a moment. Christiana Hills has sent us an email from North Carolina. Yep. Simon and Mark, my husband Jonathan is a medium-term listener. I am just an OE, an occasional eavesdropper. We, including our 11-month-old daughter, live in North Carolina. And so, as you might have heard in the news, stuck inside today on my husband's birthday because of Hurricane Florence. Yeah. It would bring my husband great joy if Mark could give him a what's-up. Listen... Mark doesn't do what I do the what's up. That's right. I just, I look on admiringly. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so uh, to Mark Hills and all the other uh, Hills, uh, what's up? And I hope everything's uh, fine with you in North Carolina. Uh, and let us know. And happy birthday. Happy birthday. Here's the other thing that we need to just pause and meditate on. The power of Lily James on unborn babies. Yes. Okay, now we need to get to the bottom of this. Jenny Marshall Evans and baby bump of six months. Whilst lying on the floor during my pregnancy Pilates and listening to your uh, last show, I was eager to test out the theory of whether Lily James does indeed cause unborn babies to dance. OK. This is because it was reported on last week's show that a number of people had gone to see, whilst pregnant, had gone to see uh, Mamma Mia and all the babies were just kicking off. They were. <laughs> I can now confirm that when you played her singing... My unborn baby promptly kicked my fruit-based device, which is still not funny, which I had placed on my bump. Whether this was in excitement or irritation, I cannot say for sure, but I am certain that before it is able to express an opinion, it will be fully indoctrinated into the church. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, Michael. Uh, this is Michael Needham. My wife and I tested your Lily James Mamma Mia theory this morning on our baby, due December 31st, and found that the baby, who'd been somewhat lively, appeared to stop for a bit of a rest. <laughs> Maybe he was just tired out, but hearing the song reminded me once again how great the ABBA songs are. So we played they some are. more of the original versions and the baby clearly loved them. Right. Anyway, I'll be flying back to the UK on Friday and I thought a rewatch of MMHWGA could be bad for me. But in the interest of science, who knows? So. That does add to my theory that it, that it wasn't necessarily Lily James. It was ABBA. Anyway, Michael is, at the moment, well, he has been the Battenberg cake in Dalat in Vietnam. Uh, anyway, he, he's on his way back over. Uh, what else? He's been eating Battenberg cake in Dalat. I think, 
on the uh, on on the app, he's represented by people. Oh, fine, 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 fine. Got it. Yeah. There's not a lot. Oh, of he call is. For... Sorry, sorry. Yes, I didn't understand what you meant. Fine, okay. There's not a lot of call for Battenberg in Vietnam, or indeed anywhere. I would imagine. Well, you know. So here's one 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 final test here. You've got a significant um, uh, date coming up. Are you going to have Battenberg as your festive cake? Hannah Kelsey says, I just want to write in support of the theory of Lily James as a baby whisperer. I took unborn child number one to see Mamma Mia 2 a few weeks ago to escape the summer heat. She kicked at various Lily songs throughout the film, but really picked up the assault at the end of the emotional finale. Let's just play some of this in and let's just see what response you get here. My baby kicking away to My Love, My Life had such an overwhelming effect on me, I could not stop crying. I really thought I was going to have to get up and leave the cinema. I crashed the vocal. There you go. It doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter because it's live live. That's right. Crash vocals, that's fine. So so a lot of people found the My Love, My Life sequence to be overpowering anyway. Imagine that if you're very pregnant. Yeah, it completely floored me. I mean, I was just in pieces. I don't know what I would have done if if there had been dancing baby as well. Anyway, Hannah says, hello to Jason and a what's up to my husband Larry from Feeling Like a Whale, Hannah in Surrey. OK, well, Hannah and for Jenny and anyone else who wants to test it. Here she goes. Oh, hang on, it's moving again. What's <laughs> that indigestion again? It's a thing of joy, isn't it? There we go. So that, that is one of the greatest moments in pop ever. Let the research continue. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet us at Wittertainment, 12 minutes past two. Before the top ten, John in sale. This is John King is in sale. Yes. Doctors, in the last week, I've seen the following films. American Animals, Mm -hmm. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, and Black Klansman. Yes. People bemoan the quality of films today, the disrespectful audiences and the multiplexes that dominate the UK cinema scene. I saw all of these films at large multiplex cinemas that offer season uh, season ticket style cards. Yep. The quality of projection was excellent. Good. The sound was great. Good. The audiences were respectful. And most of all, the films were thought-provoking conversation starting pieces that educated and entertained there'll always be rubbish films in cinemas but it seems that now more people have more access to more films than ever before and that must be a good thing anyway so it's, it it always astonishes me when people do that thing about oh yes films today they aren't as good as they were before you know today it's all superhero movies that's all it is it's just superhero movies and rom-coms and no, you they go kind of, they all they all speak like that all, yeah. and that is no that may be the the films that you have encountered but we have I mean, I genuinely think that there is more fabulous cinema on offer than ever before because there is more cinema. There are more films. Um, Sometimes it's very depressing when you have a seven-screen multiplex and five of them are showing the the superhero movie in 58 different versions. But, I mean, I I know year on year I do my top ten, you know, best films of the year and worst films of the year. And the worst films of the year list kind of stays pretty much the same. You know, there's usually 10 contenders, but the best films of the year, there's 40, 50 contenders. And that's happening really, really regularly. It's just a matter of just looking a little bit harder to find the stuff that's great. I mean, you're right. Miss Education of Cameron Post, Black Klansman, American Animals, all these things. In, in, that's re, it's a, it, we're, This is a great time. You just have to look a bit harder. So uh, It is also true yes. that certain films 
attract more respectful... I mean, it is possible to look at certain movies and go, OK, that might be a rowdy audience and that might not be a rowdy audience. That is that is definitely true. And also it depends what time of day you go and to which cinema you go. I mean, 2 o'clock in the afternoon is the ideal time. But not on Fridays. No, exactly. Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. The, uh, <clears throat> so the box office top 10 uh, this week at 17, the miseducation <laughs> of Cameron Post. It's a little bit sad that it's only gone in at 17. Well, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fairly limited release. I think it's a really well done adaptation. Uh, I thought that when Chloe Grace Moretz came on the show and you interviewed her and I thought she she was a fabulous interview, wasn't she? I mean, she, she was she's smart. And how many films has she made? Almost 60 and she's 21. And she, and she, and she'd already taken a period off in which she stepped away to decide what kind of project she wanted to do and this is the kind of film that, that she wants to do. And again, like Black Klansman, it's a story which is set in the past, a bit the recent past, but it is it feels very, very contemporary, feels very much what's going on in American politics at the moment. It feels like a really, really important issue. And I, and I, I thought it was really well done. Uh, Stephanie, uh, Stephanie Meadow. <clears throat> uh, I loved Desiree Akavan. It's Desiree Akavan. Desiree Akavan, yeah, who's, who, who, who made appropriate behaviour. She's and, the director. Yeah. Anyway, I loved her last film. Uh, and the source novel was hugely influential on my realising I was gay, so I was very excited to see the film and I wasn't disappointed. Good. The tone of the film has a perfect mix of humour and drama in a way I don't recall seeing in many other films and which matches the tone of the novel to a T. It allows the audience to laugh at some of the outdated views of those running the camp without negating how serious a topic con- conversion therapy is or the horrible effects it can have on the people subjected to it. It's wonderfully acted, particularly Chloe Grace Moretz's performance, who plays Cameron incredibly subtly, while still portraying her internal struggle of whether to buy into the doctrine of the camp or accept herself for who she is. Additionally, it never treats the camp counsellors as one-dimensional bigots, instead giving them nuanced personalities which almost allows you to sympathise with them. All in all, it was a marvellous film and easily one of my favourites to come out all year. It's an interesting point about not being one-dimensional, because particularly Jennifer Ely's character who is, on the one hand, is completely... Just to explain who she is. Well, she plays the the doctor who is kind of in charge of this conversion therapy thing, and she's doing it because she thinks it's the right thing to do. And Chloe Grace Moretz talked about this, about she's what she's doing is horrendous and horrible, and yet somehow she's doing it because she thinks that it's the right thing to do. And I and I compared it to Nurse Ratchet. And I said, but that's when you say Nurse Ratchet, people think cartoon villain. And in fact, there's a moment in uh, Miseducation of Cameron Post in which she is referred to as a Disney villain. But the point is that the Nurse Ratchet character in Cuckoo's Nest thinks she's doing the right thing. Doesn't stop her being horrible, but you you understand why she's horrible. Uh, George Hophouse. The Holloway Road in North London. I enjoyed Miseducation because the film looks great and the characters were likeable. However, I couldn't help but feel that it shouldn't be so enjoyable, at least in that way. The film tackles the troubling topic of conversion camps, but ultimately on a very surface level, with the only significant negative impacts reserved for a minor character for a brief period of the film. Oh, no. This is appropriately summed up in a conclusion that is visually pleasing, but ultimately devoid of any real substance. Okay, I completely disagree with that. I don't think the negative aspects are only seen in one central character. I think the three central characters are absolutely, you you know... No, I'd I'd have to very firmly... Take issue yes. with that. I think that's, and you've seen the film as well. well and... Yes, I would. I would. I would take issue with young George. Yes. So, <clears> so <throat> yeah. no, George. No, George. You just need George. To... 
Don't do that. Exactly right. There's a there's a period reference. <laughs> Ask your grandma. For our, our over 70s listeners. Uh, Helen Brown, I attended a special screening of Miss Education at the beautiful Art Deco Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle on Sunday, where we were blessed to be joined by Desiree Akavan and Emily Danforth, the director, obviously, first and author of the book, respectively. The film captured perfectly the awkwardness of being a teenager and took me back to my own youthful religious experiences, leaving me wondering how the filmmakers had managed to reflect my early church-going years so accurately. Your recent interview with Chloe Grace Moretz had increased my excitement for this film and her performance did not disappoint. What an intelligent actor. I will actively seek out her work uh, in future. I loved the different take on a coming out story where the teenagers were confident in themselves even though they were trapped by the wishes of the adults in the film and I was pleased to see the subtle complexities played out without casting blame. The adults in the film acting out of a desire to do good, however misguided, and the implication that they accepted that they did not always get it right. Uh, Helen, thank you very much. Also interesting that one of the great ironies of the story is that the central character... Is sent is sent somewhere where actually she finds the friendship that she couldn't find in her previous. With you know that weirdly enough, this place which is meant to beat it out of you actually presents her with a friendship group that she's been looking for. Our box office top ten continues at thirteen. <laughs> uh, American animals, which is a very interesting mix of drama and documentary. It's the story of the heist on the uh, transfer university in Kentucky in which these uh, students attempted to steal uh, rare uh, art books, rare books, pardon me, and what you get is this dramatisation with a terrific central performance by Barry Keoghan and then interviews with the actual people looking back on what they did and why they think they did it and actually coming during the course of those interviews to some, to some sense of sort of self-realisation and, and at the heart of it, this idea that they did it because they thought it would give their lives meaning in the most bizarre way. And, I mean, there are, there's a real nastiness in what happens and the film isn't scared of, of dealing with that at all. I thought it was a very, very interesting sort of balancing act. Thomas, uh, in Bath, I saw American Animals last Saturday. <clears throat> it's now almost half a week later at the time of writing and its impact has not lessened. It is one of the most extraordinary, emotional, nerve-wracking and indeed harrowing experiences I've had at the cinema for quite some time. As a middle-class, slightly bored, slightly alienated teenager about to embark on university myself in two weeks, American Animals played as a nightmare scenario for how my university years might go. As the characters start crossing the line into unforgivable actions and their fantasy of escaping suburban drudgery into a Hollywood movie crashes down in the most devastating way, the audience is pulled into the guilt, the consequences and the destruction along with the film's characters. As soon as you think you're watching a heist film... Bart Layton's masterful direction reminds you that you're not. You're watching the actions of the fictional characters bleed into the horror of the real people's lives. And there is genuine horror in it as well. What unfolds is all too real, and whilst the scripted scenes end, the documentary will keep on going. American Animals will not leave me. I'm not sure if this is an entirely positive thing. It was, nevertheless, one of those transcendent experiences in the cinema you never forget. Transcendent? That's a, you know... That's one of the best cinema experiences. Uh, Chris Harrison in Wiltshire. The combination of secret unseen screening and having never heard of the story meant that I spent much of the film wondering if it was indeed a true story and whether the interviews throughout the film were staged as well. A unique set of circumstances to view a film which I think probably heightened my appreciation of it. The film was brilliantly executed, at times very funny, and I really enjoyed the interplay between the actors and the interviewees. The film has an almost Ocean's Eleven-like breeziness to it at times, but this is quickly replaced 
with a real sense of unease as the heist plays out. The real gut punch came at the end when da 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 I instantly felt guilty for enjoying the preceding two hours so much. I mean, it does very specifically reference Ocean's Eleven. There is that and Reservoir Dogs, and there's the sequence when they're planning the heist in which the camera pans along a video shelf which has Reefy-Fee and, uh, you know, point break in it. So all those references are deliberate, and then the tone of the, the film changes as you get into what's actually happening. Uh, now, at 10... Uh, is a film called Black 47, which isn't out in the UK until 28th of September. Yeah, so I haven't seen it. This is here on the basis of violence. Yes, so this is a film starring uh, Hugo Weaving and directed by Lance Daly, set during Great Famine, and I haven't seen it yet because I'm not going to see it until the National Press Show, which is in two weeks' time. Uh, Number nine is The Equaliser 2. Which I thought was much better than I expected it to be. I mean, yes, it's an exploitation movie with with, with an A-list cast, but I thought it, it did the job. It got in, got out, it was fine. Hotel Transylvania three. No, still not. And I and I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to. It's all. It's, it is like the football results. The equaliser two. Hotel Transylvania, Transylvania three. three. Did you see that thing about? You could tell what the next one was going to be about. Uh, searching is at seven, which, again, sounds like a very restrictive format. A, a daughter goes missing. The father is looking for her online. The whole film plays out on the computer screen and on uh, FaceTime and very much like the motif that was used for Unfriended. But it's rather well done. I mean, yes, the, the plot does get somewhat preposterous as it goes on, but the but the, the, the central device of telling this story works well. And it, this, I think the most, the most encouraging way of looking at it is this is what's happened to the found footage movie. It's it's mutated and turned into something else, and not a moment too soon, frankly. Uh, Richard Cunliffe, having just returned from watching Searching, I have to say Mark got it spot on. What a stonking film. Loved the style of it, good plot. Found it really engaging, as clearly the rest of what was at first a noisy audience, but then from a few minutes in, you could have heard a pin drop all the way through. My daughter, who normally only ever watches high-octane action or blood, guts and gore fests, declared it the best film she'd seen. Wow. My only slight gripe was the speed at which the final plot twist developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a few indeterminate steps wouldn't have gone amiss. Yeah, well. it, I mean, it does it, it, it does have that, you know, third act problem. Uh, Incredibles 2 at 6. Fab, 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 fab. The Meg at 5. Oh, dear. I wanted it to be so much better. It was so much not better. And what a shame when it is, you know, Jason Statham, Shark Puncher, and the trailer was so brilliantly funny, particularly the use of, you know, La Mer was all great. And in the film itself, oddly toothless. Uh, Mamma Mia, here we go again at 4. Lily James and her miraculous abilities. Uh, Black Klansman, is it 3? It's great that this is doing as well as it is because it is Spike Lee's best film since that documentary, Four Little Girls. Um, It takes a true story. You and I were with uh, Jason Isaacs just the other day. We did a little bit of BBC filming. We did. Were we promoing? I, I, I have never seen so many people doing so much work for what will come out as... A blink of an eye. There's a certain bit of old-fashioned thinking whereby if you add pictures, you have to have about 600 people working on a project. I was met by four people, which is like enough to run a radio station. <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, so you were with Jason. So with Jason. And Jason Jason was saying that he had a, he had a, a, a problem with the plot. And I said... But that's what happened in real life. And he then did this whole thing about, I went to the Robert McGee thing and... Yeah, but he, said, he actually has a very valid point. OK, go ahead. Well, the issue is 
Uh, well, you it, it just explain this. So the essential setup is that you have two characters playing one character. That um, uh, John David Washington's character is somebody who who rings a Ku Klux Klan on the telephone and starts to infiltrate them. He's working as a police officer, but then when he's, he's African American, yes, and then when he has to go and have a face to face meeting, he obviously can't go. So they get Adam Driver to go as it but that happened in real life yeah but his so yes, i mean not adam driver obviously so it happened in real life but jason's point is just as far as the movie is concerned why don't you just get adam driver to make all the phone calls if you're worried that he's going to recognize the difference in the voices just get adam driver to make the calls and you have to say even though that didn't happen in real life there's a that's that kind of makes sense okay doesn't it yeah but then it was you know i mean the thing is it does make sense. the thing is jason could argue that you know that a clear sky was grey and I'd believe him, but but I wasn't buying his argument. Uh, Paulette Griffiths. My 15-year-old surprised me by asking to see Black Klansman in the cinema despite having an aversion to the big screen except for the occasional Marvel film. The world of cine was packed and despite the usual code violations, including my husband's Velcro pockets, <laughs> which should be banned in, a, in and out of the cinema. Yes. There's no getting away with the Velcro pocket. <laughs> Anyway, Does I he was, have Velcro shoes? I was wrapped. I sat with tears past the credits, thoroughly moved by the last song and uh, Princess Mary, Don't You Weep. Yeah. We live in a household where I tick black British African and my husband ticks white. My son ticks in between. During the film, I could relate to baby Denzel's Ron Stalworth, uh, having been the only person ticking my box in my school year, university year, workplace and all my life. My husband shared a different aspect, being an, intro, uh, an introverted kid in school, he said he could see how the eternally drunk, comical Ivanhoe character fell in with and followed these stronger-willed men, no matter how abhorrent he plays. Uh, he's a kind of a, a slightly simple guy who's in with in he's with falling the in with the white supremacists. Yeah. yeah, this film does not waste or caricature a character, and Spike Lee again brings out the best of his actors. My fifteen-year-old, who does not always give, who does not give away his words thought it sad. He did not understand all the jokes, probably, because they weren't all funny, as with watching a good horror film. He could not always figure out what was then and what was now. Mm -hmm. And that is why this film is so important, says Paulette. And would you reserve a nook in your church for teenage devotees to the small screen who sometimes raise their heads to confront great films like this? Very good, very good. Uh, so Black Klansman is there at three. Christopher Robin is still hanging in at number two. Well, no, Disney's Christopher Robin, OK, is hanging in at number two. If you want to see... A.A. Milne coming in. Exactly. In I was going to say, if you want to see a decent version of the Christopher Robin film, then goodbye, Christopher Robin. Uh, it, it starred our forthcoming guest, although I said this before when he wasn't our forthcoming guest, is, is the one to see. I mean, it's that whole thing. You wait for Christopher Robin movies and two come along at once. This is the one that I don't get. However, I am, as I said before, open to the idea that I'm having a Star Wars moment, although once again, uh, Donal is involved there. I am having the Star Wars uh, Last Jedi moment when I said I can't understand why a Star Wars fan would say that is just the wrong film. You can't make that film because that appears to be what I'm saying about Disney's Christopher Robin. So I do accept that criticism. I've taken it on the chin and I'm working through it. Here's my prediction for when Donal's here. We're going to ask him about you know, the possibility of another Star Wars film and what he's going to be doing in it. And he'll tell us everything. Yeah. Chapter and verse. The, he'll show the, us the, the spoilers. We'll give us reenact video. scenes. Yeah, video to put on the yeah. Five Live website, everything. Do you remember oh, when um, Killian Murphy 
when he couldn't say whether he was in the Batman film and he and he couldn't say when he was in the Batman film and you and you said why not and he said because I've signed a piece of paper and you said well you wouldn't have signed it if you weren't in the and he was like, oh my incisive questioning hits yet again. <laughs> So anyway, there's no, you know, if you think there's no justice in the world, hey, look at this. The Nun is at number one. Yeah, well, all I can say about it is this. Firstly, it's rubbish. Secondly, this is the, this is the spike, okay? So it's number one, The Nun. I would put it, I mean, I think it will be out of the top five next week because okay. everyone who's going to see it is going to, and the, the word of mouth on it is very poor. That I, said, yes. Alan Jones thought it was all right. I've got three uh, Go notes here. Before I go, and then it's news and sport, then it's mm -hmm. our friend. Do you know what chiaroscuro means? Chiar obscuro, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Chiar so, well, yeah, I'm vaguely, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this email says from Corey Hughes, although visually impressive with its atmospheric chiaroscuric tone. Yes. What do you, what do you understand that might Well, be? it's... it's... <sighs> It's a it's a way of representing something when it when you it's like it's dark and 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 behind a thing, isn't it? Okay, well, chiaroscuro because helpfully the puppet master has added has to this note, the treatment of light and shade in a painting. Oh, there we go. Okay, fine. Okay. But but it's a particular. It's a sort of anyway. Fine. Okay. Anyway, that seeps through this movie. The nun fails to register any scares that feel deserving of its moody feel. Can I just say the other word for it would be dark, dim, or underlit. That'll do. Michael Veal, The Nun was such a bad film, I actually felt embarrassed watching it. Very good. In other words, I felt ashamed on the film's behalf. About as much fun as a ride on a faulty ghost train, The Nun was a criminal waste of its titular character. The Conjuring 2 was by no means good, but the scenes with The Nun were close to terrifying. Yeah. Bearing this in mind, how could a film about the same imposing character manage to be so naff? Because terrifying when seen fleetingly for a couple of seconds, utterly boring when forming the basis of a whole movie. The worst film I've seen this year. Very good. Marvel. And Alex, disappointed of Dublin. Alexander Cook. Uh, last night, the good lady Beer Sommelier, yes, it's a thing, her indoors, <laughs> really? and I attended a That's screening great. of The Nun, I can honestly say it was one of the most frustrating cinema experiences I've had in a long time. Clearly the director is competent when it comes to delivering a variety of scary moments. You know, solid horror flick fare. But not only were all of these techniques overused, but they were accompanied by some unbelievably clunky dialogue and a baffling plot. I have to mention the truly bizarre accents. Frenchy, the French-Canadian, seemed to use a different accent from scene to scene. The only yes, but he kept saying, I'm French-Canadian. The only consistency being that he never sounded French-Canadian. <laughs> And Father Burke went for a sort of Irish-Mexican-New York gangster combination. Very, very strange. Yeah. If you see fit to read this email out, I'd be massively appreciate. I'd massively, massively appreciate it if you could give a wass up to all Dublin-based folks in Diplomat's Den, as well as my good friend and dedicated wit attorney Martin Hannett, who's back in London. Excellent. Anyway, so the nun for some reason is at number one. Well, it's at number one. Well, I mean, we know we know why. It's because it's from a very, very successful franchise and it opened on a Thursday. And as I said, everyone who's interested in going to see it will see it in the opening weekend. And then it will... I'm, my prediction is that word of mouth will make it crash. And in the next half hour, our good friend Donal Abdominal Gleeson will be our special guest. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. The live stream is uh, is worth having a look at at the moment. Why? Because I'm looking fabulous. You are looking fabulous. Thank you. More to the point, Donald Gleeson is looking... Oh, is he here as well? I didn't notice. Spectacularly <laughs> cool. How are you doing, Donald? I'm very well. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, well, let's just... I just want to get you up to speed. You know, we'll mm. talk about your film, but we've just got some hoops to jump through, first of all. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is correspondence that has been uh, read out on the show before, but, I, you know, obviously you're a busy guy, so you might have missed a couple of shows. Okay. I'm just... Okay. 
So, Luke, the show is available as a podcast if you are busy and you need I've to fit it in podcast. around yeah. the edge of everything. Sure. Yeah, just so you know. Okay. My name is Luke. I'm from Dublin. There I was enjoying a pleasant train journey accompanied by a latte, a red velvet donut, and the wonderful Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie being interviewed by Simon. When amongst the trains... This is like the last time mm. uh, you are on with Margot. When among the train's disembarkers at Malahide Station in North Dublin, I see what I initially think is a striking doppelganger of the ubiquitous Mr Gleeson. Upon this figure getting closer, I realise that it is, in fact, your actual Donald Gleeson. The fact that this unlikely audiovisual 3D Donald Gleeson experience occurred as I was listening to the part of the interview where Donald's current omnipresence was being discussed felt particularly fitting. Having seen Mother, which I loved earlier that week, I momentarily considered jumping off the train to catch him and attempt to engage in some heated thematic discussion, but decided... As he had alluded, that since the movie's release, this had become something of an issue. I continued the journey in the hope that the stars may align twice and I might see Margot Robbie exiting at my stop. But unfortunately, this was not the universe's plan. Her loss, though, I had saved her half of my donut. <laughs> That's great. Right. I don't think Margot spends much time in Donna Bates. No, no. Right? So, uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Joe Twyman, Head of Political and Social Research for Europe, Middle East and Africa. I'm writing following Luke's uh, tale of seeing Donald Gleeson on a train whilst listening to the interview on a podcast and his hope of seeing Margot Robbie. This is like a Charlie Kaufman film. Well, okay. it, well, gets, it gets weirder. <laughs> while waiting for a flight from Dallas to New York early on a Saturday morning a few weeks ago, I naturally turned on the Wittertainment podcast I'd been saving up. As I boarded, your interview with Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie began. Headphones in, I put my bag in the overhead locker while two women grasping Australian passports waited patiently to get to their seats. As the three of us sat down, I thought to myself it was amusing that they presumably only only three Commonwealth citizens had all been put at the front of the plane, sitting next to one another. This thought was replaced with near paralysing shock, however, when I noticed the second Australian woman was none other than Margot Robbie, who I was listening to via the podcast at that very moment. It was like a surreal ventriloquist act as I listened to her voice without her lips moving. Such was the enormity of this coincidence, I initially assumed it could actually not be her. Only after the cabin crew referred to as Miss Robbie, I realised that I was right. What an opportunity, I thought, as she sat down, not just to discuss the podcast interview and Goodbye Christopher Robin, but everything from Wolf of Wall Street to the remake of Tarzan. So I did what any devoted Wittertainy would do and sat there in silence for the entire flight. Oh, that was nice. Straightforward. Well done. That was a good move. Uh, Well well done. (laughs) Could have been a very long flight. Yes. Jonathan Keenan, I was enjoying some lunch yesterday in your run-of-the-mill hipster restaurant, Dillinger's in Dublin, listening to last week's episode with Chuckles, when when Simon was giving an update on the latest run-in with Margot in first class on a flight. Simon then mentioned that he thought that the episode of Donal had magical properties of its own. No less than five minutes later, as I was chomping away on my overpriced salad, I nearly started choking as none other than Donal Gleeson came in and sat down with a lady, unfortunately not Margot Robbie, right beside me. I don't like this. I had to call on every bone in my body not to start rambling on to him like a madman about what was going on in my ears, but thankfully my saner side won out. I grant you Dublin's very small, uh, but it was the combination of both the pod, what I was listening to, and him together that freaked me out. I now agree with Simon that Donal and Margot have fitted some sort of tracker to the pod to seek out Wittertainees. What they plan to do with that power remains to be seen. I'm almost finished with this. There's will, another one. You will be able to talk eventually. But the, you see, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, <laughs> thanks for coming in, Donald Gleeson. Love your new film. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>
Peter Noble, on a recent flight with China Southern Airlines, I was delighted to find the A.A. Milne movie on their playlist, as this hadn't reached my local bangy, crashy movie theatre. Being a member of the church, I immediately looked round to check that either or both of the two stars had decided to travel economy class for a 14-hour journey from L.A. to Zhangzhou, but couldn't see them. Then I realised that this was a different version of the film, starring Donald's presumably twin brother. See below. And this is where, uh, and we mentioned this when Margot was on last time, talking about Itonia. Goodbye, Christopher Robin. Running time, one hour, 47 minutes. Director Simon Curtis, starring Abdominal Gleason. Uh, spelling Gleason wrong as well. Yeah, <laughs> and both. Margo. And Margo without a T. <laughs> and they spelt abdominal wrong, I don't mind saying. Should be an MH in there. <laughs> Extraordinary. It's pronounced abdominal. Anyway, yeah. if you're... Very good. <laughs> well done, that's very good. If you're going to have a nickname, that's not a bad one to have. Yeah, no, no, that's what my friends call me. Yeah, yeah. They do now. That is really, really weird. I would urge anybody who sees me in the street after, while listening to yes. this podcast... Uh, and live show. Not to write into the show, because otherwise next time I'm here, the 45 minutes it takes to read all the messages... Yeah, is, there something, be... is there something that, if, that someone could do, like a little sign, that if they are listening to this show or they're listening to the podcast later and they see you, mm-hmm. and they do something, you know, which you could then return, which doesn't... Because they'd be too embarrassed. They don't want to come up to you and say anything. They just want to be There's got to be something good, I'd yeah. Just, like tap the nose three times. Oh, that's, that's very good. Just... just... That, that, that's it. And then you no, because then if I'm there with someone I know, they'll think that I'm having a secret affair with this person. I know, that's that'll true. be fun. Yeah, that'll It'll be fun be great. for yeah, you, maybe, when they no, write in, maybe, not for me in the moment. Why don't you pretend to book a bit, uh, pull a bit of imaginary spinach from your teeth? That could just be spinach. It could. That could just be actual. How will I know it's imaginary? Okay. Why well, don't you do the thing about tapping your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time? Okay, look, if okay. someone has got a better yeah. idea, you've got 12 minutes while uh, Donald's actually talking about what we came in to talk about. <laughs> let us, what could be the sign that Donald could, a listener could do just, just to let Donald know that he knows that we know that everyone has mm. been listening to this thing? Something to do with the abdominal muscles. Yes, that's preferably. what I thought. The, yeah, the, for sure. That's good. Yeah. I like that. I thought that through. Look at my yeah. six pack. That kind of thing. I'm yeah, a writer. show me your six pack. That will be totally normal. <laughs> how, how are you doing? You all right? I'm really well. How are you? It's very, it's very nice to see you. The little stranger opens uh, next week uh, in the UK. Uh, it's it's Donald's latest picture. Tell us, uh, tell us the world in which we inhabit for the little stranger. Um, okay, so the first thing you should know is it's directed by Lenny Abrahamson, who I think is uh, one of, if not our finest filmmaker in Ireland. Um, he came on the show to talk about Room. Yeah, he's. I just think he's amazing and all of his films have been wonderful. I'd worked with him previously on a film called Frank, which I'm very proud of. Um, but the world of the film is post-World War II. Um, it's set in the big house uh, in, a, in a place in Warwickshire. Um, and the house and the people inside the house are slowly sort of falling apart. Um, and into that arrives a doctor who grew up working class, who had always looked up, aspired to be of the of a, kind of a higher class than his own. And he starts to try and heal the people in the house, tries to start to heal the house itself, I think. Um, and this ghostly element which is in there starts having an influence on everybody who's in there. And uh, I think things get pretty interesting. But uh, uh, Charlotte Rampling is in it. Ruth Wilson is uh, in it. Uh, Will Poulter and Liv Hill. So you've got just the best of British actors in there as well. So that is my pitch. Yeah. Well, OK. Well, that was a fabulous description yeah. of the film, which you could never have been that pithy. <laughs> no, well, I'm not in it. I'm no, I know. But it was just like it was complete. There was 
Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Oh, well, Mark's... Oh, well, that's very good. Okay, so... Uh, and this is based on... You're awkward now. <laughs> it's based that's on how we no- like our guests. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. This it's based on the novel uh, by Sarah Waters, which mm. which a number of people uh, will have read, and it's it's sort of famously ambiguous about the way it tells its, tells its story. But you're Faraday, so just a bit more about Faraday, because he's a very... Uh, I think we we quickly feel he's a very repressed character you certainly feel as though there's you're carrying something there's a lot there's a lot going on underneath that stern face of yours yeah it's interesting you would use that that phrase carrying something early on lenny um said to me you know if you're if you carry something explosive you walk carefully i think that faraday has been a lot of it's about the class system it is a drama i think you know uh, over in america they kind of marketed it as a as a kind of a horror sort of thing which i which is never wh- the space it occupied in my mind. To me, it's a drama for grown-ups. It's a film for grown-ups, you know? Um, uh, and it has this ghostly thing which kind of drives it forward. Faraday was born into a class that he feels ashamed of being a part of and he wants to be of the house. And that's a hole he can never fill because he could have all the money in the world, but the way the class system works, it doesn't matter. If you're not born into it, you'll never be of it, you know. And uh, so he carries a lot of repressed anger, guilt, a lot of lust. And um, he sees Caroline Ayres in particular, played, I think, just stunningly, magnificently by Ruth Wilson. He sees her as his way into the house and she sees him as her way out. They both kind of want opposite things um, and yet they look to get it from each other. And uh, yeah, and then and then the kind of this ghostly presence starts to make its presence felt. Let's play a clip from the film. Uh, this is your character, Dr. Faraday, meeting Caroline Ayres, played by Ruth Wilson, at a drinks party at Hundreds Hall. Oh, Doctor, welcome. Forgive me, I rang, but... Afraid I've been pinning the house back together. So I see. My darling brother's still in Lidcote, arguing with the build about the land, so... I do hope they're not drinking to seal the deal. Uh, speaking of which, help yourself. If there are any glasses left. Pay no attention. And I think you look very smart, Betty. Oh, I should warn you. The acoustics in this room are uncanny. Every word carries. You, Miss Ayers, look beautiful. Hasn't touched a drop yet, Chip. Walk me too, would you? Uh, so, uh, is, is your character, is Faraday affecting... Uh, the voice of the establishment. You know, is he speaking posher than he actually is? Then, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think what Lenny wanted for the accent was for him not to have lost his accent. I think, in a way, he's weirdly proud of where he came from. It would have taken a lot of work to become a doctor. Well, it does for anybody, but particularly coming from where he came from, um, and yet he does aspire to have this upper class thing. So we kind of worked in some Warwickshire vowels into a more kind of classical. Uh, English accent. I think it's funny. It's a lit. It's the tiniest bit jarring. I think, and I think it hints at at the battle that's going on within himself always. There's also the sense all the way through that it might crack because you feel like he's like he's got he's putting on a performance, and you feel like he's putting on a face that at any point might actually crack. And then, of course, there's a central discussion about that that idea that you have the external side of you that you that you show, and the internal mm. side that can become almost personified. And so you do get that sense that he's. He's put. He's putting a facade in front of himself. Yeah, I think everything about him. I think the way he looks. I think his moustache. I think everything about him is to present something um, 
is to is asking to be respected even his profession he's asking to be respected he's asking to be um a part of something better in his eyes mm-hmm. uh, than he was born to and the reality is that he he just knows deep down who he really is or is worried about who he really yeah. is. I think a lot of people have that, but I think it, it weighs on him a little more heavily than most. Can you explain the title? Um, well, The Little Stranger refers to this ghost, which the family uh, feel it may be Susan Ayres, who was a child who died there when she was very young, tragically. Um, and they feel that this presence is has just infected the house. The house is crumbling, as a lot of the houses were at that stage, the bigger houses. But it's really beginning to show its age and, and, and getting in on the people there. Will Poulter is actually kind of falling apart and then it spreads through the house like wildfire as, as the film progresses. And so The Little Stranger is the thing which is pushing them um, towards catastrophe. Um, and there is debate in the film as to whether it is supernatural, about whether they're doing it to themselves or about whether it's being done to them. Um, it's all to do with class. And I think what I loved when I read the script was that the very last image of the film, Lenny is just so deliberate. I mean, he's just so clever. The very last image of the film, I think, tells you everything you need to know about what has been going on. Despite the fact that there is ambiguity in the novel and the film, I think that last image is a, is a beautiful one. Uh, yes, which we won't talk about. No, no. Because we're not Tom Courtney. Exactly. Who, demand, who, who demands to talk about nothing other than the last scene in the film and exactly what happens. <laughs> Always gives the you. Hello, I'm Tom Courtney. My last, my, my new film ends with so-and-so dying. Do you remember? <laughs> it's brilliant. It's fantastic. The butler did it. And he's great company. <laughs> or, or as Michael Caine said in the case of Batman, the butler didn't do it. I didn't do it. Uh, do you remember uh, the film Magic? Yes, of course. With Anthony Hopkins. Did you ever see that? I have not. Uh, he's seen a ventriloquist. He 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 has a, a, a ventriloquist doll. Uh, it was a ventriloquist doll, and the whole thing, all the way through. I mean, I'm, I haven't seen it for like forty years, but the whole issue is: is the ventriloquist doll possessed? Oh man! Is or it, or is, is it him? or is it all in Anthony Hopkins' mind? And throughout the film, throughout, and then there's a long lingering shot on the on the puppet. And you think, is, is it going to move? Are the eyes going to move on its yeah. own because his hand's nowhere near? Is it, is it, is it? And it keeps that suspense all the way through. And when I was, when I was watching your film, I was thinking, I was thinking it's got a, it's got a, t- even though the story is completely mm. different, it's just got that. Well, you're not quite sure. Is it a ghost story? Is it a psychological drama? Because it is, as you said, in America, it's, it's uh, got a horror inflection in the way it's being promoted. But a ghost story, certainly the trailer makes it feel like a ghost story. Would yeah. you say it is a ghost story? I would say it's a story which involves a ghost, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a ghost story. I think the psychological uh, thriller, just the dramatic element of it. And like, I think it's got a lot to say about class and a lot to say about men and women at the time, but also about now, you know, about the, the power dynamic between himself and Caroline is hugely unbalanced in lots of different ways because it's very heavily tipped in his favour in terms of being a man in the late 1940s, very heavily tipped in her favour in terms of her class uh, being above his and their kind of chemistry, I think, tells us a lot about, uh, you know, uh, yeah, men and women and, and class and stuff. The thing is, if you're going to talk about it in terms of it being a ghost story, the thing which is the most obvious touchstone is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is actually the kind of the uber text of all this, to which I think it it does bear comparison as far as its narrative is concerned. Mm. In terms of the Americans selling it as a horror movie, it's exactly the same as what happened with Guillermo del Toro and Devil's Backbone, them thinking, oh, well, it's got a ghost, yeah. therefore we have to sell it. When actually it's not about that at all. That's mm. to do with the, the Spanish Civil War. And that thing about the, the house crumbling, which puts you in mind of Fall of the House of Usher, I thought the thing that was really well done about it is that you can you can watch it 
pretty much all the way through holding who's that 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 sentence about the, the definition of intelligence is the ability to hold two two opposing thoughts in the same brain at the same time mm. and it is a film which is attempting to do which is holding those two possibilities for as long as is possible and the ghostly i mean ghosts and ghost stories are never about the returning dead anyway they're about not the good ones no exactly yeah you know yeah yeah it's similarly to i, I think you know it, it, in a weird way it put me in mind of uh, a film i did with alex garland called ex machina um in terms which of we you spoke know, to you about yeah which is the kind of elevated genre thing of you take something and you say it's about one thing and it is um the plot is about that yeah. thing and then the story itself i mean like the meaning of it is about something else it also weirdly reminds me slightly of uh, a different anthony hopkins film the remains of the day you know it's got something of that of just the poise of something being held something very very delicate and fragile being held very very carefully for fear that it will shatter is it uh, is it true that when you got the script the first time round that you were slated for a different part? Yes, yeah. Lenny had called me about a different role in the film, and um, which role did he want you to? Uh, I won't say because a great actor ended up uh, uh, playing it. It w- might not be the one that you expect, but um, it was. You played the little girl when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Six-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we want to stretch you in this part. You did it with, yeah. with uh, you know it was all it was all uh, motion capture. Oh, yeah, okay. that was that, that was still me. I mean, I still play that part. Obviously, I'm not going to give up a role. Um, but yeah, when I read it, I just, you know, I'd been looking for something that felt like uh, it, it, it was complex. And when I read this, I felt like I really understood him and was quite moved by his problems that he has. Because I think we all suffer with um, worrying about who we really are. I mean, worry that who we are is not the person that we wish we were. I think like that's just something that... Well, it certainly terrifies me, and I think that he just lives in dread of that from moment to moment, uh, that I, I fell in love with him. So you said to Lenny Abrahamson, can I be him? Mm, yeah, and he's older in the novel, you know, there's a bigger age difference, and that and that comes to bear in the novel in a different way. The novel's stunning, by Sarah Waters. Um, and they kind of rejigged it a little bit in this to kind of facilitate me being closer in age to, to Ruth. But I, th- I think I think it works okay. I think that she is so hearty. She's so such a bright light in this, and he is such. I mean, he can extinguish light. I think with a look at times, and uh, I think that the dynamic works just as well. Hopefully, yeah. And it's a very it's a very interesting period piece as well because there are various references to the arrival of the NHS mm. and. Uh, the the government selling selling off land and uh, hundreds halls having to sell off some land for for council housing and you and and your guy Dr Faraday he's against all that yes which I think is brilliant you know you've got the people in the house saying we think it's you know Ruth at least saying I think it's marvelous people need somewhere to live and then you've got the person it's this weird thing that I really think exists in real life of sometimes the people I mean technically kind of at the bottom is in terms of you know the way that the power is structured. Sometimes, because if you're sold a dream that's big enough, you will want that dream to exist, even if it doesn't work for you. Faraday wants the house to be perfect. He's kind of disgusted by the way they've let the house go. And he wants it to be the house of his dreams from when he was a child. I think there's something very poignant and very true about that. He's got that kind of Gatsby-ish thing that he's imagined the version and, and... And, and he's trying to will it into, ex- I mean, literally to will it into existence. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, like that really, that really moves me because I think we're all sold lives. You know, I mean, I, I mean, anything as, as simple as the American dream, you know, when I was talking to Lenny about it, you know, you look around and you say the things that people vote for, 
boggles my mind all the time because you think this works out so much worse for you and yet people don't want the who knows you know, what you're referring to I couldn't, to I couldn't possibly comment no, I'm not allowed to no indeed you, indeed, you absolutely should don't thank you uh, <laughs> is this me getting kicked off the show no, for bringing yeah. up politics no you're only going to get kicked off because the news starts uh, uh, in one minute so we can, so uh, what are you what are you up to at the moment Donald? What's... Uh, I have been filming uh, Star Wars and... well, yeah well tell us what tell us the storyline I'll tell you as soon as well I think the news is about to start though well, so well, we, we'll hold the news we've run out of time this will be breaking what news. A... <laughs> what can you what can you tell? Her? What what are you wearing uh, in the film? Yes. Well, <laughs> how many how many seconds have we got to count down? Okay. Is we, it literally listen. is it literally like if you say anything about it? That's it. They come and repossess JJ, your house. JJ comes with a crossbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's serious. just a game that has to be played. Yes. But we enjoy playing it as long as you don't get yourself into any trouble. Hopefully not. Uh, uh, okay. Donal, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to see you. And don't forget, if you see Donal around, you don't have to go up to him, but we just... Pat your head, rub your stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is definitely going to be weird. But anyway. Well, like the other ones weren't weird. Uh, Donald Gleeson, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Little Stranger opens next week and will be reviewed in full next week. Six minutes past three. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. If you've just joined us, you have just missed the company of Donald Gleeson, who was looking particularly... He looked really sharp, didn't he? He looked as though he'd just been, uh, I don't know, at Paul Weller's studio. Yeah, I, listening I, I, to the Paul Weller album, uh, wearing a suit that Paul Weller would have uh, would have enjoyed owning. I yeah, think. yeah, it was very, very sharp. And did you see his shoes as well? Uh, no, I couldn't. Shiny see black paint shoes. Is that the way? Mm. It is? Yeah. Anyway, remember the code. If you see Donald um, out and about, you know precisely what you have to do, and then you don't have to be embarrassed, and everything will be fine. So you can get in touch eight five zero five eight. The email is mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet us uh, at Widdertainment. Ross Foley is in Cardiff. Um, this email is to bring to your attention a code of conduct breach, not by a cinema goer, but a cinema worker. OK. I was watching the miseducation of Cameron Post in a snug 30 or so seater screen at the View Cinema in Westfield, Shepherd's Bush. Only eight of those seats were filled, so it really did feel like a private screen. <laughs> I was thoroughly enjoying the film until about 30 minutes in. A number of staff, adorned with a high-vis vest emblazoned screen checker, came in through the door, which is right next to the screen. They had a clipboard and they looked from the projector to the screen, projected to the screen, projected to the screen, ticked a couple of boxes, then stood watching the film for a minute or two. That felt like ten. This, of course, is very distracting and I was ready to forgive this minor interruption when it was repeated two more times. What? This, to me, was a clear breach of the code by staff themselves. Speaking with them afterwards, they told me this is health and safety check to make sure there's no tomfoolery going on in the screen. What, in a high-vis vest? And that the audio and the video is synced. Surely there is a better way to do this. Maybe an alert button on the seats to notify staff of any said tomfoolery. I do like that expression. Tomfoolery, yes. Is there any tomfoolery going on? Because (laughs) the chances are there often is tomfoolery. There is. But very rarely does it come from the people who actually (laughs) work at the cinema... Doing it in their high vis jacket. You don't want a high vis jacket. You want black. You need to be like a silhouette. Ninja. Like a ninja. Like a ninja. So that nobody can see that you're there. But I suppose if you're doing elf and safety, that's not going to work very no. well because someone might bump into you. Tell me the movies you're going to be reviewing in the next sort of few, uh, you know, 50 minutes or so. The Predator, as mm-hmm. opposed to Predator, The Predator, Crazy Rich Asians and Lucky. I think we'll do them, try and get them away before the half past. 85058, mayo at uk. What do you want to go with first? The Predator, okay, um, which is a sequel, come reboot of the you know eighty sci-fi romp, which originally had Arnie against this sort of dreadlocked alien predator, and which spawned a series of increasingly limp spin-offs and sequels, including the 
abominable or abdominable uh, alien versus predator film. So the first film was directed by John McTiernan, who made Die Hard. This is directed by Shane Black, who made Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Nice Guys, and had a supporting role in the original, and written by um, Shane Black and Fred Decker. Yes, that's right. It is a Black and Decker film. Hey! Um, so the story is uh, alien ship crashes on Earth. Uh, this guy who is a special ops, sort of former, a former army officer, pulls a helmet out of the crashed ship and decides that in order to, to get it somewhere safe, he puts it in a box and posts it home to the home from which he is estranged, where he has a, a son and a partner from whom he is, you know, whom, from whom he is estranged. And, of course, the minute it arrives home, it is unwrapped by his son, Jacob Tremblay, who is bullied at school and has autism, but is super smart and super smart enough to figure out that this helmet is something quite extraordinary. Probably puts it on, wears it at a, at a, at a Halloween thing. There's a scene which is very rem- reminiscent of that scene in E.T., in which the kids walk around, you know, wearing masks and they manage to get E.T. out of the house by pretending that he's in a Halloween suit. In fact, there was an interview with the director in which he said that what he was trying to do was to bring back the wonder of uh, Close Encounters. Anyway, meanwhile... Dad becomes part of a renegade team who set out to hunt down the alien ship, which has arrived, which is the other alien ship, which has arrived on Earth looking for the first alien ship and the remnants of the crashed ship. Following this, yeah. here's a clip. Yes. Hey! What's that? It's a chance for you to survive. Go. I got this. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Shooting all the birds. <laughs> there was bird song in. I know. There, and see, gunfire. There is nothing that uh, Simon likes more than to to take out the uh, the cussing. Well, that the, is what uh, his job is. And <laughs> the uh, effing and the jeffing in those trailers. So anyway, so you get the kind, of, you get the general idea. So here's the thing: the thing that um, Shane Black is famous for is the kind of very, very uh, smart talking, you know, wise cracking. Lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tating, motivating, cool fizzing, whatever that drink was. And you do get a degree of that in this film, including a riff about why the predator isn't a predator. He isn't actually a predator, he's something else. What misunderstood? No, no, but it's the predator isn't the right word, it's a hunter on it anyway, blah, blah, blah. But the the problem is that the, the quips don't land. And the relationships between the mismatched group who are searching for the predator don't land. And there's a long-running gag about Tourette's, which never feels like it makes any sense or is comfortable or is why is that gag happening. And then there's a gag about a sort of bromance between two characters which was so poorly drawn that I didn't realise that it was happening until about halfway through the film. So it's a really odd thing that on the one hand you get these sort of the things that you would expect from Shane Black but on the other hand they they they're not working they they they're not firing properly they're not giving you any of the spark there are some uh, interesting performances. I, mean, I think Olivia Munn is terrific as the, the sharp science, science teacher come biologist who is actually the brains of this mismatch thing that she gets dragged into. But the relationship between her character 
and the renegades never gels. The characters don't click and the plot doesn't make any sense. So you're watching this and thinking, this is all over the place. I mean, this is tonally all over the place. The gags aren't landing. The action sequences are turgid. The, the, the characters don't add up. There's a, there's a weird mix between the, the bits that are violent and the bits that are throwaway. Then we've got the, the, the Jacob Tremblay character, which seems to suggest that the movie is, is trying to play younger and the, the director is referring to Close Encounters. And yet, I, you know, it's not that kind of a movie at all. So then it's, it's, in t it's unsurprising first to learn that after they had the original uh, test screenings, they went back and apparently went back and reshot the end. Although, I mean, I'm, the whole thing looks like it's kind of messily put together with different bits. Then, of course, there was a scandal, which you might know about, that they had to cut a scene in which it turned out that um, the, one of the people that they had cast was a registered sex offender. And the filmmaker knew about it and Olivia Munn spoke out about it. And Shane Black initially, uh, Los Angeles Times, he said to Los Angeles Times, I personally chose to help a friend. I can understand others might disapprove um, uh, as his conviction on a sensitive charge and not to be taken lightly. Then subsequently completely reneged. The scene was taken out. He said, I made an error of judgment. This was reported in Variety that is irresponsible. I was the captain of that ship. It's my job to make sure these things don't happen. And I failed. I take full responsibility. And I'm very deeply sorry. Although that there's been a recent interview with Olivia Munn saying, you know, I didn't get that apology. So the whole thing has a very tawdry and rather messy production history. And when you look at the film itself, you think, okay, well, you know, maybe maybe it's because it, maybe some of this explains the incoherence of it. I think the honest truth of it is it's just badly put together. I made that joke before about, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person. A lot of people have made these jokes about Black and Decker, but it, the end result does look like something that some, you know, DIY enthusiast has bolted together on a, you know, on a table out in the gap. I know, let's, you know, let's, let's get a bit of that. So let's get a bit of that stuff and then a bit of that film there and we'll bolt those two bits together and then we'll solder on a little bit of that other thing that I'm referring to. Then we'll have a little bit of 80s nostalgia, just screw that into that bit there. And then I'll just, and you end up with something which, you know, which looks like it was put together by somebody who really ought to be... I mean, the really strange thing about it is, I mean, I found it very, very disappointing, often kind of uncomfortably badly done. Then when you sort of learn more about the backstory, you think, oh, well, to some extent that makes sense. But I was largely baffled by it. I just largely sat there thinking, I, you know, how is it that the whole thing is quite so messy, quite so shambolic, quite so pinballing between one kind of movie and another kind of movie and never landing on what sort of movie. And I, I'm afraid to say almost the worst thing about it was it was very boring. And I, you know, I mean, some of the Predator movies are interesting, some of them less so. I have to confess I was never a huge Predator fan. I know many people really revere the original. I wasn't one of them. It was okay. But I just thought this was it was shoddy and ill judged, and despite the fact that there are some some good performances and some good plays, the whole thing literally looks like it's been bolted together out of bits of other things and changed around, and it's a shambles. On the other hand, Henry, okay. Henry Fry, twenty in Dunedin. For me, this was the best Predator movie since Predator Two, my favourite Predator, and in my opinion, the most underrated sequel of all time. Gory as hell, funny, and most importantly, fun. Everything I wanted from a Predator movie, also everything it got right, the Meg got so wrong. I thought the Meg was more entertaining than, Predator, than The Predator. Robert Percival. Okay. Uh, myself and a cohort of cinema-going chums opted to watch Predator as this week's film choice. 
in recent weeks, we've seen Black Klansman, Cold War, Pincushion, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout and other good films. So we were due a stinker. And boy, did we get one. The Predator managed quite spectacularly to limbo comfortably under my lowest expectations. Uh, sorry, read that phrase again. Uh, that is a great phrase. It managed to... The predator managed quite spectacularly to limbo, limbo comfortably, comfortably under my lowest of low expectations. I take my hat off. There are so many things truly awful about this film. Paper thin, fundamentally unlikable characters, a narrative all over the place. A poorly, all over the place, all over the place. A poorly written and lazy script that not even the finest of actors could have done anything with and editing so bad I now think my A-level media studies short film may not have been actually as bad as it was. Above and beyond some general, generally terrible filmmaking was a very poorly judged and nasty sense of humour to the whole horrible affair. Jokes were cheap, unnecessary, crude, and tone deaf to wider issues in Hollywood. Given the reported yeah, not kidding. apparent lack of moral judgment behind the camera and negativity behind the launch of this film, which you've just been alluding to, it is perhaps not surprising this translated to the screen also. One character I found particularly in, in particularly poor taste was Rory, the son of the main character played by Jacob Tremblay. A sensitive and thoughtful character with some potential at the very start of the film who turned quickly into a dislikable, brash and foul-mouthed sauce and butt of cheap jokes. I cannot understand, understate the awfulness of this film. Truly lowest common denominator cinema. Avoid, avoid, avoid. avoid. It's difficult to say without sounding like a Dalek. <laughs> uh, that's from Robert Percival uh, in Leeds. Rob, yep. thank you very much indeed. 18 minutes past three. I imagine that's a 15. Yes, it is. Yeah. What else have you got? Okay, so Crazy Rich Asians, which I know there's been sort of an awful lot of interest in. Um, so uh, this is uh, based on a, a best-selling novel uh, by Kevin Kwan, and the story is that there is a, a Chinese-American uh, uh, called Constance Wu, uh, who is uh, an economics professor at NYU, and she's really smart and understands game theory and all those kind of things. And she's going out with this guy, Nick, played by Henry Golding, who she doesn't realise is fabulously wealthy until the moment that he says to her, look, you know, I, I, my best friend's getting wedding, getting married. I want my best friend's getting wedding. My best friend's getting married. And I want you to come with me. We've got to Singapore. You can get to meet all the family. And they get onto the plane. And when they get onto the plane, they turn left. Okay. She says, hey, well, hang about a minute. We can't, what, we're, we're surely down in economy. And he says, no, 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 we're not in economy. We're, we're, we're in in you know in superclass and they get into superclass and suddenly there's you know people bring them champagne she says how can we afford this and she he says well it, it, it turns out that my family is sort of more wealthy than you know then it's only then that she realizes that basically she's dating the heir to a dynasty and one which is not keen on outsiders so then over the course of a few frantic days she finds herself going head to head with the family and the entourage, all of whom live a life of, you know, spectacular wealth. On the one hand, you have Eleanor, who's the mother, played by Michelle Yeoh, who is impressively imperious. Then there is this all-knowing grandmother figure and a gaggle of ex-wannabes and people who want to be next girlfriend and who were next exes, all of whom have designs on him. Only her former classmate, played by Aquafina, who was most recently seen in, in Ocean's 8, seems to have her back. And her family are even crazier than his. Here's a clip. Hi, I'm Rachel. Oh, I know. <laughs> Rachel. Rachel. I heard you thought Alma was the cook. Ah. But on the bright side, you're the talk of the party. People like your dress. Oh, I did that. Oh. I know. This is a chic 70s goddess. So, Oliver, are you a cousin too? Mm. Well, I'm one of the poor relations. The rainbow sheep of the family. <laughs> 
but I make myself useful. Whatever the youngs want, I procure. Golden koi fish, Hongkali furniture, mm. a rare Cambodian gong. Why would they want to buy a rare Cambodian gong? <laughs> because they can. I'm sorry, I thought that joke was funny even in even in just the audio version of it. Yes. Why would they want to buy a recommend bomb? Okay, so as I said, um, uh, adopted from... Adopted? Adapted. Mark. I mean, I'm 54. Aeroplane um, Adapted from Aeroplane Station from a novel by Gibson, what somebody, Jason Isaac said, uh, a novel by uh, Kevin Quan. And I... I hadn't read the novel and I'd seen um, just some of the publicity and I was, you know, all I knew about it was that there was an awful lot being written about the fact that you haven't had a cast like this since Joy Luck Club and that that therefore the film had a great cultural importance and therefore was having to carry a lot of baggage with it. And I went into it not knowing much other than, you know, what I'd seen in the trailer. And what I thought was this, that despite the fact that the narrative is kind of creaky and has very familiar rom-con genre beats. I, mean, I may have mentioned this before, but I did this series for BBC Four. Oh right, about yes, no, I heard um, but about th- that. there is a relevance here about the way in which you know you get repeated narratives through genres. And there are certain you know tropes to use that word that you get in rom-com films, and it's not a problem that you do. It's just a question of whether they're infused with something new and something vibrant or whether you get the feeling that you've kind of seen all those things before. So the trick is to breathe new life into old riffs. And actually, I thought this did that rather well. Uh, Constance Wu is great. Michelle Yeoh is terrific, actually. I mean, not least because she's... The support you okay, so basically you have supporting players like Aquafina and Nico Santos and Ken Jong who are very funny, and then you have Michelle Yeoh's character who is very not funny in a way which is kind of impressive in a comedy. The other thing is that some people have compared this. They said, well, what's the difference between that and the Sex and the City films, which I famously hated because those were films about people in these kind of, you know, fabulously wealthy environments, you know, enjoying the fabulous wealth. And there's something about the movie, the fact that the title is Crazy Rich Asians, which is they're crazy rich. That's how rich they are. They're just not just rich. They're crazy rich. And so the whole thing is taking place within this world of extravagant wealth. The difference for me, and I thought this was kind of crucial, is... I always felt that with Sex and the City, the second, particularly the second one, that actually what the thing was doing was 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 reveling in this wealth. Was just it was just sort of swimming in this sort of sea of indulgence. But what Crazy Rich Asians manages to do is to, on the one hand, depict all that stuff, but on the other hand, retain a an oddly sort of standoffish attitude towards it. Because all the way through, there is this sense that 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 wealth is weird. In a, in a in a way which is you know which is not great and hey fabulous wouldn't wouldn't this be brilliant if you had more money than you could possibly know what to do with? There's also underneath the the, the comic surface some of which you know is is done really sharply some of which not so sharply but underneath there is this sort of this line of steely resolve and melancholy particularly in the character of the mother who is played as somebody who initially is, you know, terrifying and then act, and then you get to know more about her and more about her own backstory. And the film did a remarkable thing, which is there is a moment when you discover something about her character that actually made me think, oh, wow, I did, didn't expect that. And then our central character, her backstory too, takes you to places that you don't expect the film to go. Fun also to see a movie in which, you know, the narrative is completely sort of it's it's about the women's relationship with each other and how power is passed down from one generation so on whereas on the one hand you have this sparkly 
frothy surface, which I think is what the thing that you get from the trailer. The, the film does manage to juggle something else underneath that, something about the way that, um, that these different sections interact, something about the burden of family history. And all this is going on whilst on the surface you have something which is you know frothy and fun and features many kind of laugh-out-loud moments. So I was kind of... I, I do think that there, it's, some of the filmmaking is slightly sort of creaky. I think there are some moments in it which are fairly shambolic. But I was... I was engaged and it I went in with a kind of you know my you know what I'm like I'm sort of I'm slightly sniffy critic sometimes no but I no. but I went in thinking okay win me over and it did and as I as we moved into the you know the sort of the, the, the final act of the film I did find myself being moved and being charmed and thinking okay this has worked this has this has won me over and uh, and I'm and I like these characters and all that those anxieties that I had about isn't this just a riff on the sex and the city 2 idea did did go away so i think i think i think it worked uh, michelle lee in bromley i was lucky enough to catch a preview screening of crazy rich asians and it's not an exaggeration to say i think it's as important to asian people as black panther is to black people interesting yeah but the best part of western cinema we've had to watch people who look like us on screen but are nothing like us in real life people void of background depth conflict and any consequences to the story too often the borderline racist and downright racist, he's looking at you, breakfast at Tiffany's, stereotypes and caricatures have relegated Asian people to the nerdy, virgin, good at maths, science, restaurant worker with a strong accent making first dates awkward in rom-coms, or the guy who does kung fu moves and gets beaten up by Keanu Reeves. <laughs> in all honesty, Crazy Rich Asians is just an above-average film, but for the first time since Joy Luck Club... We have a collection of Asian characters on screen, not defined by the colour of their skin, but real people who have conversations and relationships not di not dictated by the amount of melanin in their skin. Yes, there are cultural aspects of the story that are specific to being Asian and Singapore, but with minor tweaks to the script, this film could just as well be set in Dubai, the Caribbean or Mexico. And I think that's something that cannot be overstated. The script is colourblind to race, and for that it should be celebrated. I mean, it is interesting that, as that email quite rightly pointed out, that there is, there, there is a cultural moment involved in the film, which is to do with this cast being in this film and it being this successful. But, but I do think that beyond that, the film has to stand or fall on whether it works, and it does. OK, can I just apologise to Michael Lee, who sent in Why? that last email? Why? Because I called him Michelle. Which and the fault was he he says in a in a bracket towards the end uh, he's corresponded with the show before okay and Edith called him Michelle oh I see fine I got it okay which fine. caused his wife uh, a lot of merriment yeah so clearly it's just a problem with the person who sits in this chair yeah so Michael in Bromley I can apologise for being an idiot <laughs> but next time we'll, we'll get it right we will yeah. presumably uh, Jing An Young, who I believe you've been corresponding with on Twitter. Well, uh, Jing An Young had written to us before. Um, she, she had written a thesis on avant-garde cinema, and I had this whole thing where I didn't know what avant-garde cinema was. And then a piece was in The Guardian when the first trailer for um, uh, Crazy Rich Asians was out, and I recognised the name, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that, if that is the same writer. And it turns out that it was. It was a very, very smart piece about the film and, and, and what Jing An was looking forward to. And so I... and. You and I had made a complete pig's ear of uh, pronouncing a name for which I prefer. I couldn't even apologize. say Michael, right? So, no, no, exactly. So, Michelle, so frankly, Jingen, so I said, you know, to just check that we could get that right. And so how lovely that you've written in again. Yeah, and we apologise for... Right. Yeah. This is what Jingen said. Go ahead. 
A great burden of expectations so um, uh, was put upon Crazy Rich Asians long before its release. Would this film... Yes, sorry, sorry, say that again. A great, burden, a great of ex- burden of expectations was put upon Crazy Rich Asians long before its yes, release. Yes, absolutely. Would this film, which is the first Hollywood film to feature an all-Asian, American, British, Australian and more cast in 25 years, be the beacon of change for Asian representation, which is currently at level abysmal... <laughs> In mainstream entertainment. I am one of those voices who contributed towards that crazy burden. I am a half-Chinese woman raised in a third culture community, Hong Kong, who counts Disney's Mulan cartoon as one of their only on-screen role models, and still do. Back in April, I wrote in The Guardian of my anticipation for the film. That's the piece I was talking about. But since its summer release, it has been an explosive commercial success. And the hype surrounding the film even caused a bump up in its UK release date from November to September. I was granted tickets to a preview screening here in London. Dare I take the risk to see either my dreams realised or have them crushed? Within the first 15 minutes... I was a sobbing mess. For the first time in my life, I was seeing a film which brought together the best of Chinese and Western traditions and culture. The characters were beautifully complex. Singapore was the perfect backcloth. You could feel the humidity. You wanted to consume those extravagant local dishes. You remembered from your own family that time at the table where everyone was laughing, making zhao zhi. Uh, which is dumplings, and tensions were high at the mahjong table. But there were wondrous... There is a great uh, mahjong table showdown scene. And human moments too. I saw many aspects of my life, too many to go into here. Uh, John Chu provided many unexpected moments, especially the mother-daughter relationships, cue more sobbing, alongside the importance of duty and family and responsibility and, of course, love. He handled them deftly and perfectly with no hint of irony. But you don't need to be half Chinese to enjoy this film. Beautifully shot, funny, universal, and at least for me, it has proved incredibly important. Then, in capital letters, bold and much bigger font than the rest of the letter, Yes, go see it and then go eat dumplings. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Andrea says, Andrea Melling. Yep. Uh, I'm a Wittitainee living in Texas, just saw this and I wanted to give you a heads up about it. In the end, I enjoyed This Is Crazy Rich Asians, yep. um, but I came very close to walking out in the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first five minutes. The first time that would have happened since I fled in terror from The Shining many moons ago. Okay, because... The opening scene is so offensive to British people that unless they cut it for the UK release, I predict an outcry. After setting the scene as London 1995... 95, mind you, not 1885, they show a Chinese-speaking family being treated in a luxury hotel with the kind of overt and disgusting racism that one would associate with the Deep South in the 1950s. This is complete rubbish and so unnecessary from a narrative point of view. I lived in London in the 90s and it was already a multicultural city. Something like that would never have happened and it's so insulting to Londoners to say it would. The film is aiming at an American audience and has the effect of normalising racism by acting like it is also a part of British culture. I can feel my blood pressure spike even thinking about it. Anyway, the rest of the film was enjoyable, a sweet story, not as funny as we expected. All the jokes are in the trailer, but beautifully shot and engaging. Uh, I'd be interested to see if they alter that scene for the UK version no, they, or hear your take on it if they do. It not. was in the version that I saw and I, I didn't have a problem. I saw it as a broad sort of comic. I mean, I didn't think it of something as being realistic. I just thought it was a broad comic set up. For the, and actually, I thought it was more to do with with wealth. and the, But it, uh, yeah, I didn't have a huge problem with it. I didn't have a problem with it. Um, here's my other favourite... But it's an interesting point, you know. Yeah. 
Well, be interesting, and, and, and if people sure, can sure, see absolutely. that, and if they yeah. uh, know London from the 90s, it would be yeah. interesting. Although, all I'm going to say is, if, if, we go, if we're going to start getting cross about the portrayal of London in American finance comedies, we're never going to get out of the studio. Uh, another one of my favourite named uh, correspondents here from Dr. Olaf Ringelband. Thank you, Dr. Olaf. I live in Hamburg in Germany. I work as a consulting psychologist. Right now, I'm on a business trip to Malaysia. Just came out of a screening of Crazy Rich Asians in Kuala Lumpur in a local multiplex. The film can best be described as wealth porn. It's an assembly of posh houses, expensive cars, clothes and jewellery without any real content or any halfway realistic dialogue. The actors are all handsome, but unfortunately not necessarily good actors and story-wise... Well, there is none. The audience in Kuala Lumpur seemed to resonate quite well with the movie. I just wished it had been a better movie with a more profound message than it's nice to be rich and buy expensive things. Yeah, but I I did think, and I think I tried to say this in my review, that I think there is a difference between its attitude to the wealth than than the Sex and the City attitude. Well, I mean, the Sex and the City 2 film I did describe as consumerist pornography. And I thought, I felt differently about this. But believe me, I went in worrying that I was going to have that reaction. If you remember when we, I reviewed Sex and the City 2, I got so cross that I started singing the internationally in the middle of the interview. I know, interview. R- ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Preposterous, anyway. But I had a good point. You can see it on YouTube. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Olaf Ringelband for sending that in. 20 to 4, TV movie of the week. Ben Sher says, 100 bloody acres for me, please. It's not a horror movie, although it's pretty gruesome. It's not a comedy, though there are bits that are comedy genius. So I'm not really sure what it is. I liked it, though. It was fun and interesting. Karen Richardson says, I'd like to flag up Whistle Down the Wind as it reminds me of watching it as a child and making me go all warm and fuzzy. Haven't seen it for years, so it'll be interesting to see if it has the same effect. Mark might go for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Lauren or Rose, Mark is going to... Dot Potter is no <clears> one Potter, of course. Mark will pick The Master. I've never seen it, but anything by Paul Thomas Anderson will surely get his vote. My choice is Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The first three Harry Potter films are my favourite and the true gems of the series, in my opinion. Tom Vamos says, From dusk till dawn effortlessly moves from stylish ridiculousness to, well, more stylish ridiculousness. (laughs) Mark, however, will choose The Master. And Andy Elms, very clever, I'll be watching Everest at 9pm on Tuesday on Film 4 because it's there. Very good. What is our TV movie of the week? Mean Streets. Uh, yes, which is on at 20 to, 20 to midnight on Saturday on BBC Two, and particularly because Child 2 said to me the other day, um, have you seen The Departed? I went, yeah, of course I've seen The Departed. And he said, well, is it Scorsese's best film? I went, no, no, it's not. And he said, but it's the one he won the Oscar for. I said, yeah, exactly, and that's why it's the it's the the pub mm-hmm. quiz trivia question, which was the film for which Martin Scorsese won the Oscar? Why isn't it one of the ones... Why isn't it Taxi Driver? Why isn't it Raging Bull? Why isn't it Mean Streets? Why isn't it King of Comedy? Why isn't it any of the other ones other than the one which no one can quite remember? And he said, OK, well, if I was going to start, you know, if I was going to... Where would I, I said Mean Streets. Mean Streets. That's where you begin. And it, not least because the rubber biscuit sequence in Mean Streets is one of the, the greatest you know, careering drunk around a dance floor to the to the sound of rubber biscuit with a camera strapped. It's just it's yeah, so mean streets. You don't mean rubber bullets by ten CC. No, I mean rubber just, biscuit. No, I realise that. Uh, and when's that on again? That is on at twenty to midnight on Saturday on BBC Two. Thank you for writing it out in longhand. TV movie of the week so bad it's bad. Gerard Sweeney, well, X Men Last Stand. He's he's written some dialogue. Go on. Okay, this might not be too bad. OK, so the director made a few clunkers, but maybe, just maybe, then in brackets, Vinnie Jones appears on screen. <laughs> oh, that's it. Uh, 
Mark Carl Hughes, Christmas. You know, I once wrote something in which I was I wanted to write Vinnie Jones, and I accidentally wrote Vinnie Riley. Who's Vinnie Riley? Girotti column. I mean, the person, the person least like Vinnie Jones. One good thing. What's he like then? Well, Vinnie Jones, you know, I know Vinnie Jones. Yeah, Vinnie Riley. I don't remember. Sensitive, sensitive guitar noodling sketch for summer. You know, quiet. You know, yeah. Mark Carl Hughes, Crystal Skull takes it for Ray Winston's incredibly aggravating performance of Kate Blanchett's terrible Russian baddie. Just shocking. The Indiana Jones film in the box set I never reach for. Ed Hutchinson, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the... Sorry, no, I just cannot... Indiana wants me. ...suspend my disbelief that much. The level of disappointment in the climax of that film is on a par with my schoolteacher when I closed a short story with It Was All a Dream <laughs> for the 52nd time. <laughs> Try Harder, D-minus, or whatever the modern numerical equivalent is. Try Harder is the sequel to Try Hard, isn't it? Yeah, but I've already told you yeah, that. Yeah, 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 I know, yeah exactly. Oliver Kiraj... I'd give it to Crystal Skull, not because it felt like a betrayal, not because it destroyed my childhood or anything as melodramatic as that, just because it took something fun and made it uninteresting and soulless. And Robert Carson's Spy Kids is just off the deep end in terms of ridiculously awful... I thought that was good, that film. No, it's Spy Kids 3D. Oh, right, it's 3D. Well, that's no good. The first two were fairly fun and breezy and clever, and then this just loses it. Witness sliced alone, arguing with various outrageous versions of himself, including the German general, and then the whole cast get one second cameos and top billing. Anyway, uh, what is the TV movie so bad it's bad? Battleship. You notice the way that that didn't happen. So Battleship is on at 25 past seven in the evening on Sunday on ITV2. Okay. And Battleship is the the film that no one asked for. Is it Battleship Potemkin? No, it's <laughs> that would be good. I'll see that instead. It's it's Battleship Waddington because it's based on the on the on the on the board game. Thank you very much. That's it was good. Waddington. Thank you. Less and Battleship Potemkin, more Battleship Waddington. But worth it for the fact that Empire Magazine brilliantly their review of Battleship was the word miss. Okay, that's fair enough. See, uh, okay, so we've got a quarter of an hour. What yes. Is, what are you going to tell us? Lucky. Which this is one of Harry Dean Stanton's last screen roles. Oh, yeah, seen all the posters for that. Yeah, it's this melancholic portrait of a stubborn old timer in his twilight days. He's lucky. He's that's what he's known as lucky. We see him in the morning. He gets up. He does his exercises in his pants and his vest. He smokes a cigarette. He heads out to the diner where he has a cup of coffee and sits and does the crossword. He goes home to watch his game shows. Um, and you know he watches them whilst at the same time thinking that they're foolish. And then he heads off to the bar where he hangs out with a series of kind of misfit buddies. One of these is Howard, played by David Lynch, who is distressed because his pet tortoise, President Roosevelt, has run away. Want to hear a clip? Yeah, I certainly do. Here we go. Calling him out of his last dime just to leave everything to our turtle. Tortoise! He's a tortoise. You know that saguaro near your yard? That thing was barely a twig when Roosevelt was born. They're contemporaries, you know. They watched each other grow up. President Roosevelt was born in a hole in the desert. At that time, a little creature smaller than my thumb. And something clicked inside that little Roosevelt brain, and he scampered up out of that hole and faced the world. You all think of a tortoise as something slow, but I think about the burden he has to carry on his back. Yeah, it's for protection. But ultimately, it's the coffin he's going to get buried in. And he has to drag that thing around his entire life? Go ahead and laugh. But he affected me. You know what I'm saying? He affected me. There are some things in this universe, ladies and gentlemen, that are bigger than all of us. 
and a tortoise is one of them. The unmistakable voice of David Lynch. I wanted to hear some Harry Dean in there. The, the, one of the reasons that there isn't is that it's fairly low on dialogue, as Harry Dean's character, Harry Dean's son's character, Lucky, doesn't say that much. And in fact, in the two clips that we were given, I think there's like, there's just a little bit of him. You heard him at the beginning going, and then that's it. And then we get into the thing. So the film's directed by John Carroll Lynch, written by Logan Sparks and Drago Sumonja. And it's... It is a series of those kind of meetings. He goes into the diner. He meets Tom Skerritt's Fred, who's a veteran, a war veteran, World War II veteran, with whom he dis- he has a conversation in which they discuss the horrors of war and a conversation about uh, his, that character's encounter with a smiling Buddhist girl who was smiling as she faced death. And so hanging over the whole thing is a sort of discussion about imminent and approaching death. And in some ways, it resembles... David Lynch's film, The Straight Story, particularly that discussion with the veteran, which very closely mirrors a scene in The Straight Story. Remember in The Straight Story, there's the old guy, he gets on a tractor because he doesn't have a driver's licence and he drives very, very slowly across country and he stops at various places and has conversations with people. And there is a slight similarity with, with that. It also has the kind of rambling somewhat loose-limbed feel of a, of a Jim Jarmusch movie. Again, Jim Jarmusch is the sort of the master of a frame with a strange, you know, visual construction, you know, a cactus or a road and a character walking through it and then shipping up in various different areas and having those kind of conversations. And it's like all the way through, although it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a down-to-earth story about a guy on his last hurrah basically going from place to place, encountering these other people and having discussions that appear to be discussions about nothing but are actually discussions about the fact that life may be meaningless and there may not be an afterlife. And if that's the case, then what's the point? And the point is that you smile because it is what it is and you live with it. And in that David Lynch thing, although it's funny and absurd because David Lynch's character is talking about his relationship with the tortoise. But he's also saying things, which is that tortoise and I have had a bond, we've had a friendship, and then he starts worrying about, well, the tortoise escaped, maybe that was... So all these discussions that appear to be about nothing are at once about nothing, but they're also about something. And there is a slightly surreal feeling to it. I mean, the the scenes when they're in the bar, they almost look like a kind of bar out of... I mean, I mentioned Jim Jarmusch uh, or Tom DeCillo, but they have that kind of weird slightly theatrical thing that a David Lynch movie would have, that there are there are conversations which are oddly philosophical with gaps between them which make them feel theatrical. And it's, you know, it's a bit it's a bit twin peaksy in that, but it's also got that kind of just that sense of melancholia. And I thought it was really charming. I mean it's a movie which is very gentle and it's a movie which tugs at the heartstrings without being sort of overtly sentimental. And there are there is a real theatricality in the dialogue. Sometimes when people are doing some performances, you think, is that bad acting? Or is that acting that is arch in a way that kind of makes... But, I, but it never took me out of the drama. I did think that I was, you know, watching this this guy who'd lived this sort of full life, approaching the end of his life and looking back on it with that sort of sense of 
of melancholy. I, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was rather charming, and I enjoyed it very much. And it's called Lucky. And you say you've seen posters for it everywhere with that picture of Harry Dean Stanton, looking just the same as he does in pretty much every picture. Can I tell you very quickly my Harry Dean Stanton story? It depends how long it's. It'll be really quick. I interviewed Harry Dean Stanton for the Alien documentary that I made some years ago, back in two thousand and one, and he was very hard to get hold of because he doesn't really like doing interviews. He's very interested in music. Anyway, I finally he had agreed to be interviewed by me for about five minutes, and I was asking him these questions about Alien, and he was giving me like monosyllabic answers because he really wasn't that interested in he would be more interested in talking about harmonicas or singing and at one point i said to him because everyone if you talk to them about alien you asked them about the set because the set was enormous the set was extraordinary being in the set was extraordinary everyone i had asked i said what's it like being on that set and then they would go into some story about it and so i said to harry dinson i said can you what was it like being on the set you know the incredible set absolutely huge set and he walked onto it what was it like and he looked at me and he went the set and i said yeah 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 what was it he said what was it like and I went, yeah. And he went, did you see the film? I said, yeah. He said, it was like that. Very good. <laughs> okay. But if you're Harry Dean Stanton, he was... You could get away with it, with yeah. A, with a certain amount of style. And that was an anecdote that I don't think we'd heard before. Very good. So that's okay. very good news. So it's time to talk about King our of friends. Things. Pardon me? Don't talk about our friends. Tom oh, fine. King yes, okay. who came on the show last uh, week? It was Sir... Tom. And Sir... Michael. Michael. Um, this is uh, King of Thieves, which was previously called... Something else, but it's now called King of Thieves. I have to say, I don't think it's the, the right title. Screen adaptation of the Hatton Garden robbery from 2015. Um, in that, uh, in the real life robbery, a group of elderly thieves, tea leaves, planned and executed the robbery of the Hatton Garden safe deposit. It took place over a long Easter bank holiday weekend, during which many surrounding businesses were shut and they were, they were in there for quite a long time. The heist has already inspired numerous films. There's the there's Hatton Garden, the heist with Sidney Livingston and Michael McKell. There's the Hatton Garden job, which is also called The Last One Last Heist with Matthew Good, Phil Daniels, Jolie Richardson. There is also a four-part miniseries starring Ken Cranham and Tim Spall and now this. So it is a story which almost immediately, I remember when the headlines happened, when the story first happened, people said, who's going to star in the movie? It's something which sort of seemed to be making itself for a movie. So this has got, I mean, the, the stellar cast, um, you know, you've got Jim Broadbent, you've got Michael Gambon, you've got Tom Courtney, you've got Michael Caine, you've got Ray Winston, you've got it. So it's the heavyweight hitters doing the story of these guys breaking in and stealing diamonds. Here's Michael Caine. Look, see this? EDF. That's a pure diamond, it's colourless, so it lets in the most light. Up there, XYZ. You cut that too shallow, you lose the light out of the bottom. You cut it too deep, you lose the light out of the side. FL, that's a flawless diamond. A flawless diamond, cut well, in the right light, is the strangest thing and the most beautiful thing you will ever see. That's true. They'll be in the vault over the weekend. How much is a flawless six-carat diamond worth? A million quid to you. How many of those are in the vault? A few. You only need a few. How much more Michael Caine could he be? Fantastic. None. None. If you, and if you want more, check out the interview on last week's show. Yeah, which is very good. So, um, uh, directed by James Marsh, who's got a you know, very good back catalogue and has, um, in the past, done drama and documentary, putting, taking real stories and dramatising them. Um, and so what you have here is a real story that needs to be dramatised, and it's an interesting story. Uh, the problem with the film is this. I think 
it, on the one hand, it's not gritty enough to be sort of, you know, have that documentary realism thing. You heard there from the, the music in the background, it had a sort of very much a sort of 60s swing vibe to it. And on the other hand, the, the drama itself is fairly straightforward. I mean, with the exception of some flashbacks to old Glory Day movies and bits in which we see the, the characters now, we see flashbacks of their, their old past. The, the construction, the storytelling is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's not taking any sort of huge risks. The other problem is it ca- it couldn't quite figure out how much it wanted to be comedic and how much it wanted to be tragic because there is this sort of underlying... I mean, Tom Courtney was talking about this, about when his character is talking about the other characters, which is very duplicitous. And every time Tom Courtney says very duplicitous, it's funny. But the situation itself actually isn't that funny. The one thing about the film that was surprising, and I think the one thing that... that, that raises it slightly above that level is that despite the fact that when you look at the cast list and when you think of the story you think oh it's going to be you know diamond geezers do diamond robbery and actually the thing that that's interesting about it is that they're not diamond geezers in fact they get more and more unlikable as the drama goes on i mean michael kane's character the film sort of remains broadly sympathetic toward but i mean i cannot remember the last time i saw jim broadbent being nasty piece of work nasty piece of work and that i thought was the 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 one thing that it that it did you know it did get completely right was that that they it's not just that they bicker and that they there's a lot of stuff about all my hip hurts and all that kind of stuff it is that there is a sense of narcissism but it's kept very much at bay by the tone of the film itself which is essentially it's got a kind of caper feel to it i mean you know heist movies can be Again, sorry to talk about genre things, but heist movies can be, you know, serious socio-political things like dead presidents, or they can be capers in the manner of Ocean's 8. And this, therefore, would be Ocean's 80. I just thought of that. Um, But it's it's an awkward balancing act that it doesn't quite get right. So I thought it was... It was fine, passably entertaining whilst it was on. I'm not entirely sure how much life it will have outside of the UK. And I think that it's... It doesn't ever click into something that ma- that makes it. I mean, the the whole is less than the sum of the parts. In, yeah, uh, and a couple of times, obviously, because it does share some of the cast members. A bit like watching Dad's Army, which I enjoy. The film of Dad's the Army. Film of Dad's Army, because you look at this talent that's on on the screen, you think this is this is good. This is this is enjoyable. I mean, I agree with everything that you said, but when you've got all those people, on, there's a lot to in, uh, enjoy and wallow in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, so that's the thing that you see it for, for that kind of, you're not going to watch it because you think, oh, it's a groundbreaking movie or it's a really well put together heist movie or it's uh, it's something that really, I mean, it's in cinemas at the same time as American Animals and that is a film which takes a true story and does something much more inventive with it. Um, very quickly, because we're, we're running up against, I'm going to do something which hasn't got a clip. So there's a film out called The Rider, which is um, directed by Chloe Zhao and uh, who made songs my brothers taught me and it's a film about rodeo riders that uses real people as opposed to actors in the drama so Brady Jandro plays Brady who we first meet recovering from a fall that's left him with a metal plate in his head and staples in his head and he lives for his horse and he lives for the rodeo but he can't ride because of his injuries. His uh, family are played by themselves, his sister and his father. His sister is a young woman with learning difficulties who has a fantastically positive outlook on life. His father is somebody who is is tough on his son and drinks and gambles. And he has a friend who was a a bullish bullish rodeo rider and is now hospitalised for whom he cares. And the film 
is about his position. And on the one hand, there's something of the melancholia and the atmosphere of Lean on Pete, although this has a sort of slightly sharper and tougher edge. It's a movie about dreams and what following your dreams mean and what it means to get thrown by your dreams. And like Leave No Trace, a lot of it is non-verbal. It's a film that tells its story in images rather than in characters explaining themselves to you. And I thought it was it was very affecting and oddly powerful. It kind of crept up on me. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thank you very much, Lee, for listening. Podcast available shortly. Mark, what is your movie of the week? You know, I think Crazy Rich Asians. Very good, Mark. Well done. Thank you. And very good you. And very good Donal. Although there was a moment when you were in the the, the emails that Donal was looking like, what have I got into? He's literally reading me a series of stories about some strange cult of which I am a part without ever knowing it. Can I tell you about my film? (laughs) Uh, Fiona Pleasance. I'm not here for fun. I'm here to talk about my film. You just mentioned The Rider just before we got cut off by the start of Drive. Fiona Pleasance has seen it. Did she like it? So in Germany, uh, early in the summer, considering its production history, she writes, it's not surprising that the rider rings very true, but Chloe, uh, is it Zhao? Zhao. Is it Chloe Zhao's talent is shaping in shaping the narrative and in directing her cast of non-professional actors to give such exceptional and honest performances should not be underestimated. For me, the rider invites comparison with two other recent movies, The Florida Project for the authenticity of its setting and its use of non-actors, yep. and Certain Women for its look at contemporary oh, life okay, in the fine. American West and the relationship between people, horses and That's very habit. interesting, yeah. While some might have trouble adjusting to the quiet register and slow pace of the five people in the, scre- uh, of the, five people in the screening I attended, two left after 20 minutes. Okay. Stick with it and the film's emotional power should work its magic. Brady's story drew me in so completely that by the end I was wiping my eyes... And several scenes have stayed with me since. One of the best films of the year so far. Very good. I'm very glad that we managed to get it under the wire in the program because we had a lot to get into this show and it was... Uh... Can, I just, can I just mark this moment by saying hello to uh, parents and students who are gearing up for uh, back to college, off to college for the first time. Yes. Particularly say thank you to all the markers of geography papers for being particularly, as I think we established in in the summer... Uh, B.O.D. They had, they had a benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. And they didn't really go too heavily on the TV, too vague. So anyway, so well done. <laughs> well done if you marked geography. Yeah. And if you marked physics, not quite so good. Despite, see, oh really? See if you can do better next but time. Despite the ones that said, what even is this? That was that's my favourite example. Even is what even is this? Um, <laughs> I love that. Jill Govan. With regards to uh, non-appearance on the Witter app of listeners on the Isle of Mull, which is a subject which came up a while back, I should point out that neither compasses nor some mobile phone network actually work on the island. However, in World War II, Ordnance Survey maps left gaps where sites of strategic military importance were situated. Perhaps the same is true of the Witter app's representation of church members on Mull. I, too, am a long-term listener living in Tobermory, and I would have added my non-cinema going, uh, but for the fabulous touring screen machine, for which there can never be enough shout-outs. The screen machine is great. And for our own Mull Film Club, a band of some 20 enthusiasts who last winter turned out to see Tom McCarthy's The Station Agent, Manny Ratnam's... That's a lovely film. Dill Say. I think The Station Agent was the first film... Oh, no, he'd been in Living in Oblivion, hadn't he? Um, 
Yeah, OK, sorry, carry on. And Almodovar's All About My Mother, amongst other films. Perhaps the next cruise could tie up here for a night and we could treat everyone to a screening of I Know Where I'm Going, the Powell and Pressburger film. Which, again, is a wonderful film. Filmed here. Unless, of course, Mull is missing from the eyewit and nautical map as well. Can I tell you one of the things that I did... Sorry, just because you put me in mind of this, talking about the Isle of... Yes. One of the things that I did this week, and you will appreciate this... I recorded a commentary track for Local Hero with Bill Forsyth. Oh, I saw you. I saw your photograph. But can you imagine the joy that that was? And can you imagine how many words Bill didn't manage to get in because I was too busy saying, I love this bit, I love this bit, I love this Did line. Did he ever at any stage bit. go, would you shut up going on about Local Hero? No, because he's not that kind of guy. I bet he was thinking about it. I'm sure he was thinking about it, but I mean, it's it was... I mean, you love Local Hero too, right? I do love Local Hero. It's so brilliant. And just being able to sit there... Because the last time... I sat in a cinema with him. We did a piece for the for the culture show in which we were at Pennon and we, we, we showed it in the village hall. And he was whispering to me, but I was aware that we shouldn't be talking because it's in... Right. You know, because Yeah, exactly. But when you do a director's commentary, it's like, okay, the gloves are off now. All you need to do is talk all the way through the film. And your tendency actually is to not talk because you think the film's on, I should stop. But of course, there's no point listening to a director's commentary if it's two people observing the code of conduct. No, but I'm sure it's a very entertaining conversation. Well, it, it was very entertaining. For me. I love Bill Forsyth. I just and he was talking about doing another film, which I really, really hope he does because he's such a. I mean, Sinking Feeling is just. You've seen that Sinking Feeling? Oh, I, probably years ago. Did you know that when that Sinking Feeling opened in UK cinemas, it was the cheapest ever movie to get a theatrical release in UK cinemas in terms of how much it cost. Was it 17 and 6? It was, yeah, it was in the realms three of 17. <laughs> three kiddies and a hat. <laughs> uh, very good. OK, so it brings us very... Ex- is there anything else you wanted to say? Oh, you've got some reviews to do, I think, because I've got my DVD of the week. But Yeah, OK, well, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll very quickly run, because obviously there was some stuff that got... Uh, that, that got uh, not because we were talking about other things. So Superfly, which is this remake or reboot of Superfly from the 70s, which the original, um, the, you know, which had the Curtis Mayfield soundtrack and uh, in 1972 was very, a huge uh, sort of exploitation hit. This is directed by director X, a.k.a. Julian Christian Lutz, stars Trevor Jackson's young, young Blood Priest. He's an Atlanta cocaine dealer, lives with his two girlfriends, Georgia and Cynthia. He's got a head, hairstyle that makes mine look sensible. There is a rival gang called Snow Patrol who dress entirely in white and look like stormtroopers. They even have white guns. And then um, he has an epiphany that he realises that he needs to get out of this business. But in order to do that, he will need to have one last score. Here's a clip. Everybody who's been at the top of the game being down. Right, they end up dead or in jail almost always because of their ego, wanting more than they should want. Everybody wants to be great. Everybody wants to be super fly. They want to be us. And you dance with the devil long enough, he's bound to step on your feet. All our years, we never had to body anyone. Eddie, why is that? Because when they think you're going to do it, you don't have to. It's leverage. No, it's because bodies leave a stink on you. I'm not talking about a stink that bring no police. I'm talking about a stink that you can never shake. This thing that will bring you down. I get it, priest. You don't have to preach to me, okay? It's not Sunday. If you get it, then you hear what I'm saying. I want out the cocaine business. So the original was basically, you know, kind of cheap and very, very profitable. This is more expensive and far less profitable. And it's easy to see why. It's, you know, like Predator, it's kind of all over the place. It's like watching a straight-to-video film, not made in the 70s, but made in the 1980s, replete with a laugh-out-loud sequence in which our hero pleasures his two partners in a shower for something like five or six minutes. And you do think, oh, you know, where's Alexander Gregory Hippolyte when you need him? Is that a loofah? Is that what the loofah is? 
Is that is that is that, <laughs> is that the kind of thing? Because sometimes, if you get a really difficult itch, sort of like halfway down your back, that's what he's doing. You do want to you yeah. want you want the pleasure that a loofah can bring yeah. you. Yeah, is that the kind of thing? That, that, that is exactly the kind of thing. So the director made his name in pop videos, which you would think um, would bring a certain sort of sheen to the things. And the whole thing does look like—I mean, the action sequences look like NAF MTV outtakes. The dialogue takes absolutely second place to people striking poses and then holding them. I mean, the weird thing is that whatever the problems of the original Superfly was, that there was some sense of grit and some, you know, social realist stuff going on in the background. None of that is here. This is all absolutely just eye-frying eye bling. And I thought it was very hard work and very, very dull. I'd also like to flag up quickly this thing called Island, which is a documentary about death. Uh, it's directed by Stephen Eastwood. It began as an installation, a gallery in Brighton. He spent a year with terminally ill patients at a hospice on the Isle of Wight. And um, the film is billed as One Year, Four Lives. And it's very, very honest stuff about end of life and also about the, the moment of death itself, or rather how the moment of death isn't a moment but is a process. And it has one of its subjects is... Uh, a forty-year-old father with a, a with a very very with a young daughter. Others are older, looking back on life. Very different uh, people. And the film is about the process of death and a, about the natural process of death. I mean, at times it's absolutely heartbreaking, but there is also joy and life in it. Um, so it's managing to get these two things to to coexist. And uh, there is a there's a motif, an opening and closing motif of the ferry coming across the water and the gates of the ferry opening up. And this is sort of, well, the way I read it was this is kind of, you know, the, the, the crossing the river, the crossing the water, the whole thing about the ebb and flow of life and death. And the reason I thought it was important, I mean, quite apart from the fact that I think it's, it's, it's very honest and very, you know, death is still a taboo subject, Um there was a very famous essay some time ago, um, which I came across when I was writing my, writing my thesis on horror fiction called The Pornography of Death, which was about how in the modern world we had basically put death to one side. We were terrified of looking at it. And it said that what happens when you have that is that the cultural attitude towards death becomes very twisted and, you know, almost fetishized because it's something which is kept out of view. And... If you compare this, there was a film recently called Almost Heaven, which was set in a, in, a, in a Chinese funeral home. I mean, I think anything that moves that debate forward is worthwhile. And this was done with, with great honesty and great candour. And as I said, absolutely heartbreaking in, in, in places, but also a film that felt like it had a natural ebb and flow of life to it. And I was very impressed. It was called Island. Uh, OK, so are you all done? I think there's loads of I releases. Am. There was loads of stuff. You're sounding quite surprised that you've gone for crazy... The, the crazy rich Asian movie as no, movie I mean, it's just, just I'm pleasantly surprised because, you know, because I said that when I, my alarm bells went off when I saw the trailer because I thought that it just looks like Sex and the City too. Anyway, all In of terms of the, the wealth thing, you know, so. Brings us to. All of which brings us to. The climactic moment of today's podcast, which is, of course, our DVD of the week. <laughs> hey. Mark, you know it was funny last week when you said you were reviewing The Nun. Yes. I thought, you what? The brand new 4K restoration of Jacques Rivette's band film The La Nun. Religieuse from 1966. That's not out till next week. Funny old Mark, wrong again. I say band, of course, it wasn't really. No. They made an exception and screened it at Cannes that year. That's right. I love Diderot's novel though, don't you? Rivette. You know, I, 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 I think whenever, whenever I'm feeling a little down, I reach for Diderot. 
I, I loved her second album. Yes. Anyway, Rivette made a great stab at transforming that, the 18th John. century chronicle. Look, I've got a script to deliver. Pearls before yeah. swine. Okay, I've got a script. Ready? Yeah, go ahead. Rivette made a great stab at transforming the 18th century chronicle. Into <laughs> a, slightly over the top and unnecessary. Into a contemporary questioning of freedom. Oh, I don't know why I bother. All of which means The Nun is indeed one of the choices for DVD of the week on a strong, strong, very strong list, which includes Apostasy, Last Year in Marion Bad, Iceman, On Chesil Beach, Far Away in Time, and The Eyes of Orson Welles, directed by your pal Mark Cousins. Simon Meadows. I think Mark will go for The Eyes of Orson Welles, as it was directed by Mark Cousins. For me, uh, having not seen many on here, it would have to be Deadpool 2. I know Mark wasn't a fan, but I had a good time seeing it. Sammy Lowther, apostasy for me, beautifully acted and thoughtful film. Characters that could be one-note villains were usually were fully realised and sympathetic. The last shot was underplayed. This is in Deadpool 2. Very moving. Apostasy. Oh, apostasy. I'm so sorry. I bit attention. Just go back to the beginning of the apostasy bit. I, I missed apostasy the Apostasy for me. That Thank was you. the crucial bit. Yes. Deadpool 2, says Andy Bradshaw, was great and should be top of the list, even if Mark is still claiming his wrong opinion about it. I'm so and sorry. Chesil Beach should always have far away in time set after it, which indeed I did. Michael Stacey on Chesil Beach. I love it. Seen it twice at the cinema. Would have seen it more if I'd have been there longer. Watched it again on the small screen too. Secondly would be Breaking In, which I also really like. And Sinead Wheeler, last year in Marion Bad, took a risk seeing it at the FBI South Bank a few years ago. <laughs> Did you, was that a deliberate joke? <laughs> I don't know. That's the way it is. <laughs> the FBI South the FBI Bank. South Bank. That's Shoot. the kind of place that I want to go see movies. That would be great. It, it would be fabulous. <laughs> it's actually a secret room at the back of the BFI. Dear James Comey, could you come and curate a season at the FBI South Bank? Both utterly ridiculous and utterly entrancing. I still feel OK about mentioning the lack of a gag reel at the end in front of the gathered cineasts needs, needs to be seen to be believed slash scoffed at anyway enough of that what's our DVD of the week so we're going to go to have two choices for the uh, for, for the modern release I am indeed going to go for apostasy which is what was weird when I thought you were reading about um, about Deadpool 2 and because we always do a reissue of the week I am indeed going to go for The Nun not least because La Religieuse La, la, la Religieuse um, which of course is a story which has been told you know times before several times before in some of the different versions of it but it was really really weird that when The Nun was coming out because they announced the DVD release of The Nun some time back in fact far enough back that when I was doing a look ahead to this is what's coming out in the summer I had to, was able to make the game but there are, you know, the hit, Nun movies you wait all this time and then two come at once so if you want to see The Nun uh-huh. see The Nun on DVD but I I just hope that somebody goes into a video store and rents the nun, thinking that they're getting quite, quite nun. Are you likely to go to Nashville in the near future? No. Uh, okay. Why? Well, if you were, there's a particular coffee house I'd recommend. Go on. Where uh, they, you might remember this, it was in the papers about 10 years ago. They found what was known as the nun bun. It was a Pardon me? It's called the nun bun. It was basically a cinnamon bun, but it was... Uh, when you looked at it, it just looked like Mother Teresa. Anyway, so it was called the Nun Bun, and actually, it really, really does look like Mother Teresa. Anyway, so they dis- how can a- okay. they displayed it in a case? I'll find a picture. <laughs> they displayed it in a case, and then someone broke into the coffee coffee store and stole it. So now you, you there are there are pictures of the Nun Bun, but uh, if you if you Google it, it's, it's all there. 
why don't you do that now? Okay, and then we can because this is there's always a favourite part of the show when Mark looks something up. No, but okay, so is it literally okay? Firstly, can I just say up, if you look up the nun because, bun. because I'm on the BBC internet now. If I look up the nun bun, that's going to be all right, is it? Yeah, but we'll put in nun bun Nashville or the whatever. nun bun. Yeah, and then you tell me whether that image looks like. Hang on, Nashville, the nun bun Nashville. Yeah, the nun bun Bongo Java. That Eleven could... years later, the nun bun remains a mystery. There you go. Look at the look. kidnapped nun bun. Re- oh, there it is. There you go. Got the photo of it. Yeah, you know, actually, it looks y- like... it's, it's, <laughs> it's Mother <laughs> Teresa <laughs> in a cinnamon bun. <laughs> I rest my case. That is remarkable. What a moment! <laughs> can, we, can we entertainment tweet that? Can we? Can we tweet a picture of the nun bun? <laughs> oh, apparently we can't. Well, we can. I'm going to. <laughs> yeah, you why tweet you, it. Why I'll you retweet it? it, and we'll tag them in, so it will be their fault anyway. Yeah. Should we tag in all BBC stations and then put a BBC copyright logo underneath it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think yeah, that's that a is. Good idea. So, did, so did you actually see it? Yeah, I went there. Yes, yeah, so I was taken by a friend who said you're going to come to this <laughs> coffee house and you can see the number. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Your weekend can be this entertaining. Just look it up. That's it. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing better than that going to happen all this weekend, no. is there? Have a fabulous week anyway. And you. Thank you so much.